Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Meet Kevin Show. Today, we get to go deep on crypto. And what better way to do it than to bring over George from Crypto R Us, YouTube channel focused on crypto news and all things crypto, to help me get to the bottom of, of some of the potential downsides of crypto. Are these downsides overblown? Are they real? Do we have to be worried? Or is it all up from here? Let's bring in George. Welcome aboard. Hey, thanks for having me, Kevin. Absolutely. So tell me, what's what's on your mind? I, I, I you know, there's been a lot of uh, talk recently about the stability of stable coins. Uh, you know, the the future of Bitcoin. What's what's on your mind? There's a lot. There's a lot on my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I think right now, I think the number one. Uh, number one question a lot of people have, especially newcomers, even your last guest, um, I think the number one question is, are we coming to a top? Is Bitcoin going to repeat like what happened with 2017, right? And previous cycles. And I view this cycle very, very different from previous cycles. So uh, short answer, no, I don't think we <laughs> topped out. But long answer is, I think people don't realize that traditionally in the past, Bitcoin follows this, this thing called four-year cycle. And it's four years because according to the code, every four years, there's a halving event where the number of Bitcoins that gets produced per block gets cut in half, which makes Bitcoin more scarce, which decreases the inflation rate, basically, essentially. So based on that, usually the first three years of that cycle, Bitcoin tends to come down. And the fourth year is when you have that explosive growth and usually it tops out and then the cycle starts over again. It tops out, comes down, and then it starts another four-year cycle. So 2020 was um, when the last halving event occurred. So 2021 is technically the fourth year of the four, you know, the cycle, which is the most explosive year, which you know, we should see tremendous gains this year, and we have already. But I think what's different this time around is institutional adoption, which never mm -hmm. occurred before. True. So that's a that's a big thing. That's a big driver. We're seeing Bitcoin gets, you know, get pushed to over a trillion dollars in market cap, which you know, not too long ago would just seem like it's it's impossible, right? Mm -hmm. When Bitcoin was down to thirty eight hundred back in twenty twenty, no one thought. That realistically, Bitcoin could get to fifty thousand or a hundred thousand this quick, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and that's because of institutional adoption. There's so many, so many institutions and even public traded companies. Everyone is jumping in because they need a Bitcoin strategy at this point, and that's why it's very different now than previous years. So that's a long, that. long answer to that. Yeah, the uh, you just mentioned they need a Bitcoin strategy, aka these institutionals. Isn't it possible that uh, institutional investors are just seeing retail buyers and retail households going, "Hey, you know, we want some exposure to Bitcoin." And is is it maybe that institutional investors are kind of just following retail investors here, or is this like institutional investors actually understand it better than retail? Like, are they ahead of us or are they behind us, right? Are they playing catch up? Where are they? I think I think institutions are definitely behind the retail investors in this space. Bitcoin has always, you know, done its thing within the last 11, 20, 12 years, a lot of volatility, um, but basically it held on held true and kept going because you have a collective 
group of people that really believe in it. Some people believe in Bitcoin because they see it as a, a store of value. Some people see it as a way to disrupt the central banks of the world and what they're doing, right? Especially like right now we see that, right? So there's many reasons why. So retail investors held strong and you could equate that with many things, even non-crypto, even equity wise, like if you look at Tesla stock yeah. um, or, or Apple, you know, back in the day, right? You have a collective group of people that really believed in it and just really carried it no matter what Wall Street or anyone else said, right? So I think Bitcoin was led by retail investors. Now institutional investors, they see it and they don't quite understand it, but what what I'm seeing is they're kind of FOMOing in. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, retail investors are, are known for FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. But institutions are now doing that too because you have a couple guys that really set the bar. Even uh, someone like Kathy Wood, um, she has come out and said very good things about Bitcoin. Um, and of course, uh, I don't know if you know Michael Saylor of Michael Strategy. Oh, yeah. Of course, he He's made all in. Yeah, he made a big splash. Came out of nowhere. No one knew who he was until pretty much the end of 2020, and said, "I'm putting all my money." Uh, from MicroStrategy into Bitcoin. And uh, he really opened people's eyes. And same thing with people like Kathy Wood and uh, Scott Miner of Guggenheim and all these guys. Um, they're just saying nothing but good things now. Even the banks that were very traditionally very anti-crypto and Bitcoin, yeah. they're all coming out with trading desks or custodian services and all, they're all jumping in, right? So okay. now that's why I think everyone's looking at uh, looking at Bitcoin and coming up with a strategy with it is some may not even realize what what the main benefit is, but they they can't be left out. So that's why I feel like a lot are just FOMOing in at this point. But of course, there's a lot that really understand it, too. Yeah. How, what do you say to people who are like, hey, you know, sure, maybe the institutions are getting in, but they're getting in just to like sell their funds. You know, they're, nobody's fundamentally valuing it, right? That fundamental analysis argument always comes up. Like, is this just, you know, somebody's willing to pay more than the next guy? So there, there's a couple people, um, I won't name names, that will say Bitcoin has no intrinsic value. Sure. Um, and, and the thing is, I think most people that, most people that, that kind of know little about finance and I don't claim to be a very financial guy. I don't know all the inner workings, but I do know that something like the USD um, is not backed by gold anymore. Hasn't been for decades. Right. So a lot of people still look at it that way. Like Bitcoin is digital. It's not backed by anything. There's no intrinsic value. Um, but you look at something like the USD, it also is not backed by anything. And what's worse is the USD is inflated. Um, you know, you, before it was 2% every year. Now it's a lot more because of all the printing that was done last year and this year, right? So um, so this, this notion that it has no value or that someone will only buy it um, just to sell it to someone else, um, you know, at a higher price. But yeah. that's how that's how anything works. If you that's true, Stock, right? <laughs> real estate. I mean, it's true. Somebody's got to pay me more for it, otherwise it's valueless. So I mean, right. I guess that's just sort of like a redundant argument. Like, yeah, it's an asset. Like that's how it works. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, um, some people will make the uh, make the point like, oh, Bitcoin 
is not as good as gold because it's not physical. And if there's a power grid out, you know, like an Armageddon situation and, and all the electrical power grids go down, then Bitcoin is useless. Well, in that case, I would argue gold would be useless. Bullets and food and, and basic necessities would actually rise in value, right? So you can't argue that just because Bitcoin is digital, it's not worth anything. Yeah. Um, and yeah, this notion of you, you have to make a profit by selling to someone higher. That's anything. Real estate, yeah, good point. collectibles, cards, priceless art, even like things like NFTs. They all work on the same premise. Yeah, yeah, true. Is there is there a way that you kind of uh, look at Bitcoin and how that you determine? Okay, now it's undervalued. Now it's overvalued. And like, how how would you see that? Um, that's a good question. Um, how I I look at it now is kind of what I uh, hinted earlier about adoption, institutional yeah. adoption, and it goes really beyond that too. You're starting to see countries also come up with a Bitcoin strategy. There are, there are countries that- Except for India. <laughs> well, they flip back and forth. So it, 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 it always happens. I, I don't know what it is about India, but um, <laughs> but there are countries where you know, their inflation is out of control, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and there are countries that honestly, they're, um, they're, they're looking fully at coming out with a digital fiat version of their currency, right? right? So we know China's doing that with their digital yuan. Uh, Russia is rumored to be doing that. United States is looking to do that, right? So everything is is moving in that direction. And, um, and you know what? I look at that. I look at how big financial firms, hedge funds, family offices, pension funds, everyone getting in and that's how I'm making my determination that the top is nowhere near and how this could keep going and why it's undervalued. And there is there is something I shared with you. I don't know if you could pull it up, that site that shows the USD equivalent um, to SATs. I think this is a very telling story for people that, that uh, aren't aware of uh, inflation and how it's real. <laughs> Let's see it. So one US dollar is currently worth... 19 or 1790 sats, SATs. Right. Okay, what, Sat, what is that? Sats is just, uh, Bitcoin could be broken up. You don't have to buy whole Bitcoins. I think that's uh, also a misconception oh, so these are for Satoshis. a lot of newcomers. Yes. Oh, but, oh, sats is just a nickname. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. Yeah, I started my Bitcoin journey in January, so I'm trying to put all these things together. <laughs> <laughs> so roughly 100 million sats is one Bitcoin. So mm -hmm. 10 years ago, with one single dollar, you could have bought more than one Bitcoin with it. Wow. And go down nine years, eight years, seven years, five years, and then look at the percentage change. So you could argue that, <laughs> that uh, fiat or the dollar has depreciated versus Bitcoin by that much within wow. a very short amount of time. Now, um, also Bitcoin, appreciated too but it just depends on how you look at it so th yeah, this is one of the reasons even, why like this an is asset. a logarithmic scale right here because it's going from you know uh 100 million to 10 mil to 1 mil so this is a logarithmic decline here so i mean this would be even more extreme if this were linear i mean it, it would just be like probably like a straight arrow down <laughs> yes yes and and this is the reason why um 
this is the reason why I believe everyone should have a Bitcoin strategy or should own some Bitcoin because of this. Mm -hmm. Because when you versus like, let's say, you know, 2%, 3% inflation, you don't really notice it. But when you versus an asset, not just Bitcoin, like real estate or stocks, you know, when you when you versus the asset, you'll you'll realize how much the U.S. dollar is really deflating, right? So I mean, yeah, inflating. Yeah. So what percentage of your portfolio are you throwing into Bitcoin? I mean, are you just like I'm all in? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Pretty oh much. my gosh! Okay, okay. Uh, wow, that's impressive. So is it is it just Bitcoin? Or are you diversifying into like the Doge and the Ethereum? Yeah. Um, so you know how traditionally, um, like fund managers or portfolio managers would say you should break up your portfolio 60 40 yep. right so something i've come up with is the 50 25 25 rule which okay. is 50 percent in bitcoin 25 in what i call big caps of all coins um, which is anything worth uh 10 billion dollars in market cap or higher and then 25 percent in smaller caps anything that's under 10 billion dollars um, and with this kind of breakup, that's what I'm following. I have the stability and growth of Bitcoin still. I have more growth with the big caps because they tend to move faster than Bitcoin. And small caps also, there's tremendous growth. There's a lot of promising projects out there that that really can stand on their own. And you can yeah. see that. So, yeah. What What about, I mean, like, so the other day I was, uh, and, and, you know, I've, talk, I've talked to, for example, BlockFi since, but... Uh, you know, I, I want to touch on, uh, well, let me ask you, hold on, let me, let me finish this, this portfolio train of thought, and then I want to get into the stable coins. So okay. to, to restart that, what, uh, like, are, are you in Doge then? Are you grabbing into Cardano because you believe in these projects? Uh, I'm not holding Doge and I'm not holding Cardano right now, but they're, they, they have their purpose. A lot of people love Cardano because the leader, uh, Charles Hoskinson, Charles, yeah. Yeah, and um, it's on. It's an unfinished project. It's been ongoing for quite some time, but there's a large number of people that really believe in Charles and believe what Cardano could become, which is why it has gone up so much. What's holding you back? Uh, I kind of just missed the train on that. Okay. <laughs> I just kind of missed okay. the train. Um, Appreciate there's been the so many others <laughs> that that have got in, and Cardano has gone up like mm -hmm. thousands and thousands of percents. I just feel like there's better buys at that point at this point for me for me okay so i mean so that there is there bitcoin. is a more growth to it <laughs> so, so bitcoin what are the other ones uh there's a whole lot there's a whole oh, lot man okay so so you like got an index fund after bitcoin almost uh, yeah sort of like my my portfolio breakup which i i don't share but i have probably like 40 altcoins in there oh whoa yeah and is there's it a lot considered an alt these days because I mean, it's number two. But... Anything that's not Bitcoin is an altcoin. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> that's, that, that's traditionally how it's been categorized, and I still believe in that because nothing competes with Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a store of value. It's 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 a technology. It's a medium transfer, but ultimately, I believe it's a store of value. Um, everything when else. You believe when, when you what? hear like Jerome Powell say something like we don't think it's a good store of value and you know they question it because of volatility which is like we've heard this from the mainstream and the traditional uh folks frequently uh and so how do you respond to those those allegations well i think he has to say those things 
<laughs> he cannot. I, I don't think he could just come out and say, "I think Bitcoin is a fantastic store of value, and everyone should be buying Bitcoin." I don't think he could say that. Um, but um, but yeah, I think that I think that 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 website that I showed you yes tells it all. Um, yeah. It's been it's been growing. I think annually, um, 200% year over year over year versus yeah. the USD. So yeah. how can you not say it's not a good store of value when it has gone up in the last 10, 11 years, millions of percents. And uh, within the last, you know, even if you look at 2017 and how it went down from 20,000 all the way down to like 3,100. Yeah. But, you know, relatively speaking, you wait three years and now you're, 300% higher, roughly, you right. know, how's that what a bad are the odds thing? of us seeing this again? You know, like yeah. what, what are the odds of this kind of run again in the future? I mean, sure. We mentioned earlier, look, it's at a trillion bucks. Now we never thought it would go to a trill. Is mm -hmm. this going to go to 10 trill? Like, like the gold industry, I'm pretty sure gold's like 10 plus trillion dollars, right? Are we going to see Bitcoin there? Uh, is, is this just going to keep going? Yeah, I think, um, I think that that is definitely going to happen at this point. Many, including myself, think that Bitcoin will equal gold's market cap and then surpass it. Now, it doesn't mean that it's going to happen within a, this, this cycle. It could be the next cycle after that. But um, I think people are realizing that gold, I'm not trying to bash gold, but gold has not been doing very well within the last 10 years at preserving wealth, being a store of value um gold's price now is lower than where it was 10 years ago um so that's a telling thing and i think a lot of institutions now that are buying bitcoin that are trying to come up with a bitcoin strategy yeah i think they're actually selling off gold to buy bitcoin not wow. equities or anything yeah and JP, jp morgan even said so as well i mean they came out and said we think gold is go kind of suffer because a lot of <laughs> companies are going to be selling off their gold to buy Bitcoin. So if that's happening and we're seeing that already, um, there's no doubt in my mind that Bitcoin will equal gold's market cap in the near future. Is it possible that this thing plummets back to 5K here in, in the future and then causes some massive ripple effects through the market? I wish it did because that I would <laughs> even more all in. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, right? It's it's one of those things that, um, sure, anything could happen. I, I I sometimes say this, kiddingly, but uh, of course anything could happen. You know, uh, World War Three could happen. Aliens could invade. Something of a, a zombie apocalypse could happen. And of course, then Bitcoin is not very useful at that point, right? But seeing where it is now and seeing these the, the strongest hands, I would say. Um, the large institutional investors that are buying it, you know, traditionally they would hold gold and, and others and bonds and stuff like that for decades. Why would they just buy Bitcoin now and just try to sell it off for a little profit? They would be holding on for long term because I don't think their expectation is to make, you know, to go to the moon with Bitcoin. Their expectation is simply to just preserve wealth. That's it. Right. And if it does that better than gold, they're just going to continue to hold it and hold it and hold it. One thing that Kathy Wood recently mentioned is that 
Bitcoin might be an interesting investment for institutions because it doesn't correlate exactly with the market, like the S&P 500 or even the Dow. It has a very low correlation to the Dow, almost as low as real estate correlates to the Dow. Uh, do you think that if, if people pick up this argument that Bitcoin could just be this diversification asset then that, yeah, so what? If it goes down, fine, we'll buy some more. If it goes up, cool, great. Um, yeah, so there's that argument. Some people will argue that Bitcoin does have a correlation and some people argue it doesn't. Like Shamath has come out. He's a big Bitcoin guy. He has come out and told everyone uh, many times to buy at least one to 3% um, into Bitcoin because it is a non-correlating asset against um, the markets. So, I mean, when you have like a catastrophic event, like what happened in March of 2020, everything's going to correlate a little bit, okay? Stocks, the Dow, everything went down, plummeted. Bitcoin went down at that time. And then even gold at that time came down. But, you know, during like recovery periods, that's where you see the, the real non-correlation. Because since then, you could see that, you know, even though equities market has done well, gold has somewhat done well, but look at how well Bitcoin has done, right? So in terms of correlating and non-correlating, I generally think that there is still some correlation, but it's it's widening and it's going to get to the point where eventually if, let's say the equities market, you know, the next crash comes, Bitcoin not only uh, holds, but also gains. And that's when you will see true non-correlation between Bitcoin and everything else. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that 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 would be crazy because, you know, in, in last March, everything fell. Well, with the exception of real estate. <laughs> it, it's, it's like uh, we, we saw, uh, you know, Bitcoin and, and stocks uh, plummet. Uh, but that would be very interesting if, if the stock market plummeted and Bitcoin was like mooning, uh, you know, which could potentially happen under an inflationary environment. Are you expecting big inflation? Is that one of the reasons you're you're seeing you're pushing so convincingly into crypto? Uh, see, th this is where I wish I had a better financial background, because there's a lot of analysts and economists that would argue about, are we really going to see hyperinflation or are we just going to see normal inflation or we're not going to see any inflation at all? Right. Um, but generally speaking, to dumb it down, you know, um, is if you look at how much money that exists in terms of fiat and if that money supply goes up by 20 percent within a single year, which it did. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then another I don't even know what it is. I think another 10 or 15 percent based on the stimulus package this year. Yeah. So that has to have effect. Right. Because now the pool of money just expanded. <laughs> so. There has to be inflation. That that's how I view it. But I know there are people argue like tech would be deflationary, and there's other things that can that kind of curb that. But um, you know, seeing how Powell is basically saying I'm not going to raise interest rates until 2023, and and uh, you know what, I'm going to continue buying you know junk bonds and continue going. I don't know. It just seems like there is going to be inflation, and if you do want to hedge against it. You have to buy assets that does not um, does not depreciate like USD, right? I, yeah, and I, I see Bitcoin being the best asset to buy at this point. What about though? If is it possible in a weird way that uh, we've seen a lot of people invest in cryptos as an inflation hedge, 
and and potentially because so much money is flowing into cryptos maybe we're actually hiding or preventing inflation from happening in the first place by all this money flowing into crypto investments if we add up all of all of the you know market caps of you know bitcoin and the latest gains and all the altcoins and all the nfts right like maybe that's where all the money printing went <laughs> It, it could be. I mean, the market is is uh, is definitely blooming right now, and yeah. there's new there's new innovations that's coming up. That that's what's awesome about crypto in general. Um, you know, Bitcoin led everything, and it still does. But now, because of Ethereum and other guys, they have introduced you know token offerings, which is which was very hot back in 2017. Not so much now; it still happens, but. Then we were introduced to NFTs, which wasn't popular before, but is very popular now. And also DeFi came out of this too, right? And, yeah. and to a point like hybrid DeFi or CeFi like lending companies. So there's just so much innovation going on. It's very early. A lot of it is, of course, speculative, but that's why people are excited about it. And I also think why um, altcoins in general are doing well is because Unfortunately, I think a lot of retail investors coming into the space, they look at Bitcoin and they're like, oh, it's 55,000 to 60,000. I don't want to own 0.001. I want to own one or 10 of something. So they right. also look at altcoins and that new money coming in is actually driving altcoins much higher and some of these innovations. So is there a concern that like what happens if in three or four months, we go through, you know, maybe some short-term inflation, but then all of a sudden inflation disappears. You know, all somehow we don't know how, but somehow we did all this money printing. Biden did a, you know, another four trillion dollars in in infrastructure, and and here we are. It's August, July, or August, September, and we're all sitting here going, "What? How? How is there no inflation? How did prices of food come back down? How did prices of chips and lumber and metal? How did those things come back down?" But then, like the Fed was right, we we just didn't see inflation. How? And what what happens to crypto then? Like, maybe we don't need a crypto hedge. In that scenario, which is very unlikely, I would say. Um, yeah. But e even if that happened, for retail side, I would say nothing changes because you know there's a lot of speculative things, a lot of new innovations, and a lot of basically a lot of people view it as trying to invest in Apple, Google, Microsoft very early, like before they become the big powerhouses. And I do believe a lot of these projects will end up being that way, being the, the big decentralized powerhouses of the future. So from a retail yeah. perspective, I don't think it's going to change. If there was zero inflation, then I would say maybe institutions would change their mind because then they would go back. They would go back to traditional investments that they do. Um, but you know, I, I would say that my guess is that institutions would probably curb their buying. But then again, so many of them are are going full blown crypto services and they're just not going to ditch that all of a sudden. Like, yeah. you know, like Fidelity is coming out with um, uh, they already are a custodian for Bitcoin. They own mining farms. I didn't know. I don't know if you know, they own 10 percent stake in HUT 8 mining. Um, and they're also trying to come out with the Bitcoin ETF, right? So they're like kind of all in already. I just don't see them saying, okay, we're just going to stop all of it. <laughs> and Goldman Sachs is also opening up a, tr a you know crypto trading desk. 
and they're gonna help institutions get involved. And so there's there's like, I guess the infrastructure is already being built and it's just, yeah. I don't see that going away also, so. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So much. Uh, so the more almost like infrastructure we have around this, the the stickier it becomes. Uh, yeah. Which they also say that the more we we use, let's say Bitcoin, the really the stickier and less volatile it becomes as well, huh? Uh, I would say not not usage, but more of um, liquidity. The okay. higher so Bitcoin can you define gets. That difference? I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. Can you yeah. speak to that difference? Yeah. So, um, so just because you have a bunch of people, you know, let's say they transact in Bitcoin, which is really inefficient. There's better ways to do that. Um, a better crypto, I should say, to do that. But in terms of liquidity, I think that's ultimately what's going to curve volatility. So, for example, right now at one billion, the volatility, the swings that we're seeing up and down. Yes, there are still swings. Yep. is way less than when Bitcoin was at 10,000 and way less than when it was below 10,000. So wow. as Bitcoin's liquidity or basically overall market cap goes higher and more and more people are hodling Bitcoin, right? Then, you know, there's just really not much, there's not going to be as much volatility because there's less people that are trying to day trade or swing trade it. Most would just be buying and holding it. So well, what happens though in, in the event of... Um you know, a crash. Uh, I want to touch on that. It, you know, there's, there's, I heard uh, one of the risk managers over at BlockFi say, Hey, look, if we have a sudden crash or whatever, miners might be disincentivized to mine. And you start seeing some mines shut down. Uh, and, uh, you know, I know there's some formula adjustments or whatever, but they were talking about, and I want to ask you about this. They were talking about how you could see transactions go from, you know, a 10 minute speed to like a 12 or 13 minute speed. And this, this could create liquidity issues very quickly, even these minor transitionary moments. Uh, any concerns regarding, you know, how basically your, you know, the incentive to mine reduces in the event of a crash? Yeah. Uh, so that, that did occur. But that's one of the, the, the beauties of the Bitcoin code is that the, the difficulty, which is yeah. the algorithm that all the miners are trying to solve. And when they do, they get rewarded in Bitcoin. That, that, that the difficulty of the algorithm changes every two weeks. It's set that every two weeks adjust. So if it detects that there are a lot more miners trying to solve that equation, the difficulty will adjust and become more difficult. And if it detects that a lot less is trying to solve, it will get easier. So this notion that if there's a big crash, that the miners will become unprofitable and just shut down, the worst case scenario is it happens for two weeks. That's it. Because within the two weeks, right, um, Bitcoin falls to a point where, let's say a miner, um, I'm just making this up. I don't know exactly how their profit um it, you know how the profit is but let's say they make um a million dollars per day this is a large mining farm right and the difficult and uh let's say bitcoin uh, and that million dollars based on bitcoin being at let's say fifty five thousand, but bitcoin falls to thirty thousand. that means all of a sudden that profit basically plummets almost in half but if their operations let's say is more than that that five hundred thousand, then they're technically operating at a loss right so then in that case, they would shut down miners because they were tr they would try to decrease their operation costs, like electricity costs would go down and stuff like that. Sure. But after two weeks, 
then the difficulty adjusts again and it becomes much easier for them to mine, which means that they can make more Bitcoin to make up for it. So That's in two weeks, they two would week basically delay. just respin up the miners that they shut off. Unless, yeah, yeah. unless this is like a catastrophic effect where Bitcoin keeps going down for right. an extended period of time, right? right? But you know what? This this will keep adjusting. And this happened in March of 2020. There were reports that miners started shutting down um, a lot of their mining rigs. And uh, there was pictures about like, you know, they, they showed uh, in China, there's wheelbarrows of like, miners like just sitting out out in the you know being thrown away or whatever i think some of that was fake but um <laughs> but you know what the the bitcoin network didn't die it's not like everyone shut off and and they're like okay we're done no right um it's it, uh the miners how I, how I view the miners are like the new um kind of like uh oil back in the day oil or still i shouldn't say back in the day but <laughs> uh oil refineries you know people from middle east that own a ton of oil they're kind of like they have that cornered you're, you're just not gonna really go find more oil beyond what we already know but bitcoin mining is the same thing there's a lot of miners that start very early they have built their operations so big they have a ton of bitcoin in reserves and they have a ton of money they're just not gonna go away because they know this is like this is what's gonna make them into billionaires and possibly trillionaires in the future. So, yeah. Now, why is, is here's a, another criticism that comes sometimes of the Bitcoin community is that uh, sometimes uh, the Bitcoin community is not interested in hearing anything remotely negative about a potential downside consequence and, and evaluating this. Is that unique to the Bitcoin community or crypto community, or or is that just like all assets? Like, hey, if you, you say something bad, whether you believe it or not, but just explore a possible negative scenario. Is that is that healthy to be aware of the downsides, or or is it just Call it FUD, click out, dislike, and leave, you know? Like, what's yeah. your experience been? I, I agree with you. I agree with you. There's there's many. That's why some people call the crypto community toxic is because <laughs> sometimes you have an opinion that may be not popular, and then you get ganged up on. <laughs> um, Dave Portnoy, Barstool, uh, you know, sports, uh, he entered Bitcoin very little, uh, very I think a week, and then he got driven out. And since that, everyone just keeps like bashing him on that decision. And I think he's coming back. But yeah, I, I, I agree with that. So I, I do think there should be more open mind, uh, op more open minds in the space because some people will like a project and some people won't like another project. But then if you say, I don't like this project, you get bashed on for it by the other communities or whatever, right? So I, I, uh, I agree with that. But here, here's the thing too. When you have, I, I say, this is why I love Tesla and Bitcoin together, because I see two of the most like cult-like followings of, of anything out there. You have yeah. people that love Tesla and people that love Bitcoin, right? And uh, when you have a culture like that, it's really hard to stop because they will hold and buy forever despite what anyone else is saying. And when you have a group of people that will do that and that group of people keeps increasing, then it's just unstoppable force. Right. So um, so it's good and it's bad because I think that's ultimately what carried Bitcoin throughout all these years when there's mass volatility and everyone thought Bitcoin was going to die, it continued to move forward and thrive, right? And I think, you know, uh, I think ultimately that's a good thing. But yeah, I do think some people should open up their minds more about different things. 
Yeah, yeah. And now you are a hundred percent crypto. Have you ever been nervous about that? I mean, like, what if you're wrong? You know, I mean, why why not have some Tesla stock? <laughs> Uh, my, my history of stocks have been really bad. So that's one wow. of the reasons why <laughs> um, Thank I, you got for in first. <laughs> I got in first in 2000 with a dot, uh, dot com bubble. Then um, I got in heavy in 2007 um, oh. and then <laughs> housing bubble. So, okay. um, but uh, here, here's my new, new way to think. I find like investors that, that make, and I could be a hundred percent off, but, I find investors that make the most money are the ones that have the most conviction about what they're investing in. Right. And I, I think it's once you build out, once you have that wealth, you are a multimillionaire, you're a billionaire. Okay. Then obviously risk, you know, uh, management is very important. You don't want to lose what you have already. So then I feel like diversification is great, but when you're trying to build that wealth, you want to stick with what you know and stick with what works. And that's why it's crypto for me right now. But I understand if you, if you already built that wealth, then it's a totally different game. That makes sense. Okay. So did you say you got hit in, in the 2007? Was it real estate debt or, or, or stocks both times? No, it was stocks. It was always stocks. Is that maybe one of those anybody. reasons that like, you look at Cardano and it's like, no, 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 I've, I've kind of hit, like I've, I've missed the train on that. Is that coming from like the 2000, 2007 experience? Um, not really, not really. Okay. I, I guess um, there are certain, just like all things, just like real estate, I think this is a good example. Once a certain real estate gets up to a certain level, it's just not gonna come down anymore. And you kind of just miss that boat, mm -hmm. right? And with crypto, there's always new parcels of land. Let's just put it that way. So rather than try to buy a prime real estate, you know, in uh, Manhattan or something, try to buy something in Kansas City. Maybe that will become the next hot spot. But that's kind of how it is with crypto. I think a lot of people that believe in Cardano have held it since it was pennies. And I yeah. saw it in 2017. Cardano went from nothing to a multi-billion dollar project in months. And yeah. since then, it has held there and just kind of gotten there, right? Um, so I just, in terms of Cardano, it's just one of those things I, I feel like I've missed the boat. So I feel like there's better promising projects that can make me more money. That Let's just put it that way. That makes sense. Now, this was interesting. This, this talk about uh, like comparing it to almost plots of land. Is, isn't it, isn't that in some sense kind of risky though? I mean, like, you know, like for example, uh, you look at real estate, it's like, okay, well, if I buy right on the coast, there's only so much of that, right? There's mm -hmm. only so much and coastline real estate's probably going to do well where whichever coast you're on. But yeah, I mean, what if you do go to an area where it's just like, there's nothing, it's like a desert or something like that. There are no houses, there's plenty of it. Is that, I mean, if that's kind of like the altcoin market in, in certain uh, altcoins, is there a concern that, hey, you're kind of just like, planting a seed here and here and here and here and hoping that one of them goes to the moon. But I mean, it almost feels a little like in some altcoins, like penny stock hoping that one of them blows up. That, that's a good point. But that's why that 50, 25, 25 rule I said yeah. um, is important because vast majority of, the, the, of your portfolio, if you follow it, is in something much more stable. Because when you invest in something small, of course, there's a risk that it's going to go away and just die 
and, uh, and there's bad things that can happen. But here's the difference, though, because a lot of crypto companies now are backed by uh, very influential people and, and investment companies that yeah. um, that can turn that plot of land into something. So I think that's mm -hmm. very important to look at. You're not just investing. What I do when I look at a project is first I look at the idea. Do I like the idea? Is it achievable? Is it you know something that that's needed? Yes. And then next to look at the leadership. Have they done something before? A lot of them are seasoned professionals that have worked in giant tech companies. And a lot of them are entrepreneurs that have created businesses and exited those businesses that made hundreds of millions of dollars. So then you got to look at the track record. If, if they have done this before, why couldn't they do it now with a new project? Right. Oh, I so see. I think that's the, that's the thing you got to look at. You got to look at a number of, a number of different things, but I think the team and then also the backers, you have some very prominent people like Tim Draper, for example, um, very good at tech investing, right? And he's investing a lot of these projects. So you got to figure, well, if he's investing in it, then maybe there is something to this, right? So mm. that's the difference. Is it, what about uh, the, uh, you know, there have been, uh, you know, there was, how uh, am I trying to say here? There, there have been some coins, some altcoins that have totally evaporated, like disappeared. Uh, or or had massive legal issues or whatever. Can you speak to those a little bit? And should those problems be something we consider as uh, you know we balance our portfolio? Yes, and I think the leadership again is a is one that we need to pay more attention to. The ones that have simply disappeared because of mismanagement, or they pulled some kind of exit scam, or got shut down by. SEC or some regulatory body, right? Um, they're a project founded by people that didn't know what they were doing. And that's one of the bad things about 2017 with the ICO craze is everyone was making money, so much money that they're just willing to invest in new projects no matter what it was. And a lot of projects got hundreds of millions of dollars of funding, but they just had a concept. They had nothing built. And the leadership had no idea how to build it. And those were the ones that collapsed. Ah. Everyone else that collapsed kind of like they died because the, the market, I mean, they didn't die, but in the sense of their price died is because we had that crypto winter. But a lot of them continue to execute, continue to, to build upon their vision. And now three years, four years later, they're done. And they're, they're now really starting to blossom. Um, and a lot of them came back. So, with crypto, I always I always say this. It's almost like they're almost like this is it sounds bad, but it's kind of like they're cockroaches because it's really hard to kill crypto. It's really, really, really hard to kill crypto. There are crypto oh. that is down 99.9% that have come back to life and have made new all highs. They've been sitting dormant for years and then they come back. And some of these projects are the big ones that you know of, like Litecoin. Litecoin died after 2014. It, it literally went to almost zero. It went sub $1. And Jeez. then it came back in 2017, and now it's a big cap. It's still sitting up there. So there are projects that just because they stay dormant doesn't mean they're dead. So Ah, okay, gotcha. So, jeez, uh, I mean, like it, it, you said you have almost like 40 altcoins. Like 
what are you just looking for leadership to pick these so that you you don't run into maybe those situations where you've got a an unscrupulous uh, leader or or, or uh, you know executive uh, that increases your risk appetite or, or portfolio rather how how are you picking? <laughs> Um, that's kind of my secret sauce. <laughs> ah, okay. Okay. Um, but I mean, uh, it goes beyond that. That's obviously very important, but there's also trends you need to look at. Um, you know, like right now, NFTs, DeFi is very hot. So that's a trend. Um, also looking at exchange listings uh, being listed on the right exchange so that people can actually buy it. That's actually important too. And, uh, there's other things I mentioned about looking at the concept of what they're trying to do. Is it realistic? Is it what I call sexy project that people care about? Um, and the leadership among other things. So there's there's many things to look at. Hmm. Gotcha. For somebody starting out, do you generally just recommend uh, start with like the B uh, BTC and Ethereum or uh, how, how does somebody go about researching and getting to that next level of understanding? Uh, yeah, for anyone starting out, I would say just go with Bitcoin. It's the, the least riskiest. It still has plenty of upside. And I think a lot of people turn off again by the high price, but they shouldn't because you should okay. concentrate on the growth. And from yeah. where it is now, I think there's still plenty of growth. But before getting into altcoins, and this is, this is unfortunately what a lot of retail investors, um, they fall into this trap. They get mesmerized by the price and then they FOMO into something that they don't quite understand. Huh. And I feel like that always happens, but that's why I have my show to educate people on that. Um, because a lot of people will look at, let's say, Ethereum is really not, not a good example for that because it's already really well established. But I, I don't know. I'm just going to pick Dogecoin, for example. Yeah. Um, you know, people saw Elon tweet it out. They, they see it pump up. They're like, oh, this has to be good. I, I'm going to get into Dogecoin. They don't really understand what, what it's all about. Um, they just want to get in. And uh, Dogecoin was on Robinhood. So it's like, hey, why not? Let's go buy Dogecoin, right? And a lot of people got burned when it came down. Um, right. It is still holding relatively well speaking. But still, a lot of people bought it at $0.08, cents, $0.09. Cents. Now it's back to $0.05, cents, right? So that that's the thing. It's like... Um, you have to be educated and there's many ways to do so. There's a lot of websites out there that talk about these projects. There's a lot of YouTube channels like mine that talk about all coins and stuff like that. So I think new retail investors need to realize they, they need to stop the FOMO and uh, they need to just actually do real research before jumping in. But I advise everyone that's starting in to go with Bitcoin first. Yeah, I see. I hear that, uh, you know, the research is being so important. Sometimes it's almost it's almost hard, though, to find like really good quality research. And then sometimes we're, we're searching around and which was thank you, by the way, for your channel. But, uh, you know, sometimes we're searching around and we look at altcoins and then we hear about, oh, SEC investigating XRP and things like this. Hey, doesn't that concern you? Like once we start getting regulation involved, too? Yeah, I mean, it's. Unfortunately, media is media. They're going to drive what sells, basically, sure. what draws the most views. So unfortunately, you look at Bitcoin, you just search Bitcoin on Google. One day, you'll see nothing but positive news. Another day, nothing but negative news. And it, they, they flip-flop left and right, left and right. 
So I get, yes, that is actually really hard. If you're trying to figure out, should I buy Bitcoin? Should I not buy Bitcoin? Is it going to go to yeah. zero or is it going to go to the moon? It's kind of hard to figure out. So yeah. the only thing I can say is you just got to, you got to take your time, just like anything, take your time, um, spend real time looking at paying attention to what people are saying, make your own decisions, right? Don't just listen to what anyone says hundred percent, right? Ask the right, right questions. And that's really all you can do. It's just really, really do your research and don't just follow what anyone else is saying. Where do you recommend buying it? Uh, you know, price, convenience. Uh, you mean like where to buy crypto? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of places. Um, if you're in the US, the biggest one is Coinbase. Okay. The, the problem with Coinbase is, is um, their customer service really sucks. Really sucks. So <laughs> Coinbase, uh, you know, they're trying to do a direct listing IPO pretty soon, which I think will do very well. Yeah. Um, they picked a perfect time to do it, like absolutely timed up perfectly. But with that said, the customer service kind of sucks. But if you don't have customer ser service issues, um, then you could get on and it's, the app is pretty easy, easy to use. But for me, I prefer someone like Gemini. Is Gemini is just as easy to use. They're, you know, they're very regulated because they're in New York. Um, and, um, you know, they have insurance and all this stuff. And their interface is really easy to use. And I, I recommend like pure exchanges like Coinbase and Gemini versus, say, Robinhood, for example, is because they allow you to actually um, to actually withdraw and deposit crypto. So that if you wanted to move it somewhere else, you can. For example, if you wanted to put your crypto onto a, a hardware wallet, so you want to secure it yourself, you can actually make that withdrawal out. Where something like a Robinhood does not allow you to do that. Right. They right, they just exactly. hold it for you. Yeah, that was one thing that I thought was so interesting about Robinhood. I was looking at my uh, because I do have Bitcoin on Robinhood. No. I, we we originally we called this like a drunk purchase on like uh, I think it was uh, the night of the Georgia election. Uh, like, oh, I should buy Bitcoin. People are like, yeah, yeah. Everybody in the comments like, yeah, yeah, yeah you should. And I, I nothing about Bitcoin. Uh, still, I'm just scratching the surface. Uh, and uh, so I just swipe up on Robinhood. And then like the comments load, everybody's like, no, 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 don't buy it on Robinhood. It was already too late, right? I didn't buy it on Robinhood. And what's funny is like now the money's kind of stuck there because I bought it, you know, as a joke at like 35K. And, you know, now obviously it's more, so it's yeah. great. But, but if I sell it to move it out of Robinhood, I, I pay taxes, which I don't want to do that. So right. I'm just going to leave it there. I don't want to pay the taxes. Uh, but uh, then it got me. I've been really curious about the space and I've been price shopping and price matching. And I, I don't understand how or why or if this is a loss lead or what. But when I compare uh, Coinbase Pro, Voyager, BlockFi, uh, you know, and, and some of these, these other platforms, Gemini, to Robinhood, Robinhood beats their pricing. What are they doing? Uh, I don't know the intricacies of Robinhood, but I'm assuming they do something similar to PayPal now. I think they have to buy a certain amount and and uh, they replenish that somehow, like every day, every week. I don't know what happens there. But basically all these exchanges, they have they have their own order books and yeah. you know they, they adjust over time. But some are higher than others because they build in fees that that you know their just their platform happens to be higher for example a voyager uh, voyager fees are generally higher they don't actually say they have a fee but when you do right. a purchase 
the spread. The, yeah, the, the spread is just worse. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so I don't know how exactly Robinhood does it, but I'm assuming they, they do it like everyone else. They buy a certain amount. Maybe they can charge less fees. That's why it's a little bit less. Um, or maybe there's other things, other services they're not paying for that makes it so that they can offer at a lower price. But generally speaking, like Coinbase is, if you look at Coinbase Pro or Coinbase price, that's kind of like the universal price. And you could see if Coinbase price is higher significantly than everyone else, that's usually an indication that there's massive buying going on. And oh. if Coin yeah, and if Coinbase price is significantly lower, that means there's massive selling going on. So that's actually a tell if you look at Coinbase price versus everyone else. Wow, that's incredible. Uh, I don't have to look into that. <laughs> Thank you for that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, massive buying drives uh, drives the li uh, liquidity down and prices up. So what about these platforms where you can earn interest? You know, the Voyager, BlockFi, and there are lots of these. I mean, there's some that are bigger, uh, and then there's right. some that are tiny where they're like 40%, 50% interest. It's like, well, what? <laughs> you know, like, can you speak to this a little? Um, there, there's many different ways to earn uh, interest with crypto, but let's just start with someone like BlockFi. There's uh, yeah. a lot in this space. BlockFi, you have Nexo, you have Celsius, um, and then Voyager. I think that's that, yeah. that's about right. Uh, so these these companies, they're kind of like uh, I'm just gonna categorize them like hybrid CFI, DeFi, because obviously they're dealing with crypto. Right. And some of them have their own tokens. So kind of in the DeFi space, but of course they're a centralized entity. And so there's, you know, CeFi too. Um, so I had a chat with BlockFi right before I came on here to kind of clarify things. So uh, who'd you talk to? Uh, Shane, he's a VP. Okay. Okay. Um, so there's, there's three things going on with BlockFi, and I think most companies are like that. BlockFi doesn't have their own token, so they're a little bit different. Um, other companies like Celsius and Nexo does, so they have more liquidity because they are also dealing with their own tokens. But sure. BlockFi, they have three businesses. Number one is as a retail investor, you can borrow. You can borrow against your own crypto. So if you deposit $1,000 with a Bitcoin, you can borrow up to $500, okay? It's that simple. It's an over-collateralized loan. So if Bitcoin ultimately falls, then you, you know you get margin call that you have to replenish or there goes sell off and get their money back. But according to BlockFi, they do give you a 48-hour window. So it's not like you get liquidated immediately. They can wait for you to actually put in more collateral. Oh, that, um, well, that's interesting because I just spoke with BlockFi, somebody else, and they're like, we have the power to liquidate you immediately. And it's like instantaneous. They're like, and I was like, wait, but now you're saying Shane told you 48 hours yes. to give you some time. Cause they want the customer service too. Right. right? But like, if things are free falling, you know, like speak that, to this more, I want to hear more of this. <laughs> yeah. Because that I I've asked that too, because um, I'm like, you know, because me traditionally, I don't, I don't ever recommend anyone to borrow um, to basically over leverage themselves. So right. I myself never participate in, in these kind of uh, projects where I put down collateral and borrow against it for this very same reason. I asked specifically, do you guys just liquidate immediately? And they're like, no, we give you time. Um, we know that this happens. So wow. that I did confirm. So I don't know who you spoke to that. I told you otherwise. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But 
that's the that's the one part. But the other part, I think this is where I, I saw your uh, I saw your stream on Millennial Money with the other guys talking about this. When yes. they lend out, so the second part is okay. Let's say you're not taking a loan. A retail investor wants to deposit money just to earn interest. Let's say earn eight percent on USDC or something like that. Yeah. So on the flip side, how they make that is by lending out to institutional investors. But I was just told they're not doing it on a one-to-one -one basis. They do it on the same way they do it with retail investors. They force institutional investors to deposit crypto to take out a loan. So most likely it's the same ratio, that 50% ratio, so that right. they're depositing. If they want to borrow $100 million, then they have to deposit $2 million with the crypto to be held so that they can borrow that hundred million dollars. The difference is that these institutional investors are paying more interest because they're borrowing a larger amount. That's how yeah. they, they make money and give it to the retail side. So they go through at least what I was explaining, they go through KYC, they have, they have like a, some kind of meeting to say if they approve this or not. So they do have that on that, um, on the backside too. And they also say they do trading. Uh, they do their own like internal trading services, internal trading to also utilize uh, to make more profits. But one thing they did clarify is uh, if you deposit, let's say Bitcoin in, they never take your Bitcoin out of cold storage. It stays there forever. The only thing how they can get cash to lend out is through stable coins, why, which is why they give such a big, uh, big amount of interest on stable coins because they can take that stable coins, convert it to cash and lend it out really easily and vice versa back. So right. anything that's not a stable coin, they don't touch, it just stays into cold storage. But if it is a stable coin, then they could convert it to cash to lend out. So according to them, they're very, very well, um, their reserves is is uh, is substantial. So that that's how they explain it to me. So that actually makes a whole lot of sense. And something else that, that I want to add on is this notion of stable coins, which there's a lot of, right? The, 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 big, the big ones from the US, like the Gemini one, Gemini's USD, USDC, which is from Circle and Coinbase is a uh, like a partnership kind of. These are heavily regulated because they're entities in the United States. They have to be looked at by every single regulatory body and they're audited regularly. So they are backed one to one. Um, but something like USDT, Tether, that's where the question mark comes in. There's a lot of baggage with Tether that has, yeah. that has occurred over the years. But the good thing is whatever that may have happened before, I believe won't happen anymore because they just got done settling with the New York Attorney General's office about shenanigans uh, that happened between the Phoenix and Tether. But Phoenix basically right. had eight hundred the and there. they had eight hundred fifty million dollars like locked up in some other bank. So they took an eight hundred fifty million dollar interest free loan from Tether. Um, that's what made them not be backed one to one because they're missing right. eight hundred fifty million. But uh, since then, huh. since this, they said they have replenished every quarter. They have to submit audit reports to the New York Attorney General's office. And, uh, and they paid a fine. So uh, going forward, I just don't see how they're going to mess around. They're being looked at, you know? So what, yeah, what I may guess have the, happened before that happened? 
Yeah, and, and I get that with like, uh, you know, maybe BlockFi. So let's say BlockFi is lending out and they've got these requirements of, of over collateralization or just basically having uh, more collateral on hand than what they're lending out. It makes sense. Uh, but the, the concern to me becomes what goes on in the institutional environment? Why can institutions pay BlockFi, let's say, 10% for BlockFi to then lend it out at, say, 7% or whatever? There's that spread. What are the institutions doing to make this kind of money? And so my concern is what happens if, you know, the institutions, whoever they are, they borrow, I don't know, a million USDC from BlockFi or whatever. Mm -hmm. But then they rehypothecate that and they borrow, you know, they, they take that money and basically lend it to someone else. So now they're taking borrowed money. They lend it to somebody else. Maybe the collateral requirements aren't as strict because they're like, hey, we're paying 10% interest. We need to make money here. We'll lend it to you, you know, on, on credit, basically collateral free. Uh, and you're going to pay us, you know, 12 or 13%. But now as, as we keep going down this lack of transparent road, and ultimately we don't actually know whose USDC is where because we've just gone down this road so far. Right. Uh, like the, the end user doesn't know that it came from institution C, which came from B, which came from A, which came from BlockFi, which came from Gemini, right? Like our transparency stopped at Gemini BlockFi. We don't know about the institutional custody of this. Yeah, but if you think about it, uh, why does it matter? So let me explain. I know that sounds Fair. bad, but but why does it matter? So if you have institution A make a hundred million dollar loan, uh, borrow a yeah. hundred million dollars. They may be greedy and they they reuse that to lend to other people for higher interest, which may can't, which could happen. So there's institutions B, C, D, whatever, right? Let's say all those institutions screw up, and uh, and institution A now have lost their entire $100 million. They yeah. put in $200 million collateral with BlockFi. So why does it matter if all that loss, it just means institutional A is now screwed and they lost their $100 million. So I guess my point is, yeah, of course the transparency would be nice. Just like we would love to see what hedge funds are doing behind the scenes right now. But mm. um, you know, sometimes you don't get it, but ultimately in terms of risk mitigating for BlockFi, they have that. And if somehow, sure. let's say, um, you know, whatever collateral that institution A put down, let's say they put down Bitcoin and Bitcoin goes down by half. Well, they they will liquidate them half on their collateral and right. it doesn't affect BlockFi. So it would have to be some kind of catastrophic event where Bitcoin went down 90 percent and it just held there for like yeah, exactly. indefinitely. Yeah. Right. And then, yeah. Then in that stage, I would say they're all screwed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because in in that case, then you get these these institutions that are, uh, you know, potentially getting. I mean, beyond margin call, they're getting liquidated. They can't meet their obligations, and a danger becomes like, okay, even though BlockFi has the right to liquidate at let's say collateral level fifty percent or whatever it is, well, like you say, hey, if it falls ninety percent. BlockFi, you're still losing money. You're still way upside down. You give people 48 hours and it and it continues to crash in the pan. Uh, th there could be some some issues there. And so yeah. I always look at that as like, look, obviously we we don't we we don't expect that to happen. We don't hope that to happen. Uh, we don't want that to happen. Uh, but if it does, I just I like having that certainty that the whole thing won't collapse is is important. Uh, and look, I own my Bitcoin. I've got about a million dollars invested in Bitcoin related assets, Bitcoin, Bitcoin related. Uh, I don't want this stuff to crash, right? right? One of the things that I do is I look at all the possible bad 
so that I could feel more comfortable in my conviction. Because like the last thing I want is me owning a bunch of uh, of a certain stock and then somebody going, well, did you know that this was a possibility? I better know about that possibility. Otherwise, my conviction gets shaken, you know? So uh, one of the things with crypto is there is no Jerome Powell. There is no Jerome coming out going, no problem, market. Yeah, print money, <laughs> you know? Uh, some people used to argue that Tether was Jerome Powell, that you could just oh. print a limited amount of Tether, there, okay. you know? Um, but I guess, you know, you got to just look at it this way. There's a lot of things that can't be controlled, right? There's yeah. there's big banks that that we've trusted before that went belly up, we've, you know, ones that have been around for hundreds of years. You know, there's always a chance that something could fail. But that doesn't mean that no one is putting, you know, depositing money into banks anymore just because some failed. Right. And with, with lending companies like BlockFi and others, it's a very small subset of what's out there in terms of the number of holders of let's say Bitcoin, like look at yeah. the overall market caps, like $1.8 trillion. You look at how much value that these guys really have on hand. It's minuscule. It's not a big thing. So mm -hmm. that's also the, the reason why I don't think there should be that much concern, but there is of course some concern that, Hey, maybe these guys don't know how to manage their money and maybe they do screw up. So that's why, again, myself and I advise other people just not take a loan against their crypto because it could lead to bad things. But uh, yeah, that's how I and here's the other thing, too. What's also evolving here is don't think that everything is is like a BlockFi. There's a lot of actually true DeFi plays out there that is simply governed by code where you can okay. simply deposit and by code, you're going to get a rewards back. So there's different mechanisms for that. And those are like true DeFi. And I think the space is still very early so that we're going to find some kind of balance going forward where there's going to be less risk, uh, more automation. Let's let's put it that well, way. Maybe touch on that because, you know, first thing that I thought is why doesn't everybody just put their money into like a BlockFi or Voyager? I mean, why not earn the three to 6% uh, on, on your Bitcoin or 5.25% on Ethereum? or 8.6% on USDC. I mean, geez, man, like just go refinance my house for 3% and go put it into USDC and make 8.6% that BlockFi has on their website. Why, like, am I stupid for not doing that, you know? I've thought the same thing too, especially with a stable coin like USDC. Yeah. If it's anything else other than USDC, I think it's risky. Because if you're mortgaging your house, you put into Bitcoin and you, uh, you put into BlockFi, there's still a chance, even though they're giving 5%, what if Bitcoin falls faster than 5%, you're still gonna lose money that way. So there's still a risk if you buy any other crypto to put it into a lending company like that. But USDC, I kind of agree with you. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about that. Like, why don't I convert? Yeah, I think for me, it's because I have all my money in crypto already. So, and I think I could gain more by doing that. But yeah. if you're conservative, and you simply just have a, a ton of cash sitting around and it's sitting in a bank account, a checking account or savings account that's not making much. Yeah, this is definitely a big, um, a big improvement and advantage by doing this to put it into a stable coin, put it with one of these lending companies or, or you know, you just simply deposit. You don't have to actually borrow and just yeah. earn interest. Yeah. I yeah. mean, that's that's a valid point. 
Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, I usually see, maybe it's my real estate background, uh, but in, in real estate, usually I hear high interest rate, like eight, nine, 10%. I hear risk. Like it's just like a big, like red flag, like the siren, like risky, you know, it's like, oh, GUSD it, it backed one to one to, and, and you could earn 8.6%. And I go, yeah, I get it. I mean, that's why I think there is a risk involved. I think you asked the right question. I think a lot of people asked me beforehand to kind of address this before I came on, but I listened to what you said and there is a, there is a risk level. There's anything, whenever someone is holding your crypto, there's a yeah. risk level, no matter how much insurance or anything that they have. Yeah. Um, just like the example with banks, you know, there's going to be some kind of risk. So it just depends on your risk tolerance, I guess, but crypto, um, you know, has been around for a long time. BlockFi, it hasn't been around for hundreds of years, but it has been around for three or four years now. If right. you look at, if you ask them how much liquidity they have on hand, we're talking about billions of dollars. So, you know, you have some comfort in knowing that they're not a mom and pop shop that just appeared yesterday with no liquidity and it's offering you this kind of interest. You know, they are established, they are backed by some very wealthy investors and prominent yeah. companies. They have insurance, they're regularly audited, and uh, you just got to figure that they know what they're doing, right? Of course, there's some risk, but I'd much rather put it into, say, BlockFi than some unknown company. And I'm not trying right. to endorse BlockFi. <laughs> it seems like right. I'm really trying to no, endorse no, no, no. them, but I'm just using them as examples. Uh, yeah, I get that. Yeah. You know, one thing, like I see this comment here, Max uh, says, um, uh, ask Bitcoin every or ask BlockFi, everything is over collateralized. See, the thing is, I, I, I sometimes I get a little bit frustrated with the definitions that BlockFi uses and, and it bothers me. Uh, look, I like BlockFi, I like them there, but and, and I like to be so critical of, of, of things just so I can understand them more. It's not because I don't like them. I, I love BlockFi. I got a ton of Bitcoin with BlockFi. Uh, the uh, the thing that gets said is, okay, well, BlockFi over collateralizes. Yeah, well, what that basically means is you have $100,000 in your account, let's say, and they let you borrow 50%, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is no different than like real estate. It's no different than margin. Uh, in that case, every kind of loan is over collateralized because you're, you're only taking out a certain loan, a percentage of your total value on real estate, you know, you're taking out, you know, maybe 75% on uh, M1 finance margin, you're taking out 30% at BlockFi, you're taking out 50%. So this argument that like it is over collateralization, that's just normal lending. It doesn't mm -hmm. mean the value can't fall under what the borrowed amount was. Yeah, that, that that's exactly right. I mean, um, you look at, um, Shoot, I was gonna make a good example of this. Oh, sorry, <laughs> but it's okay. Um, shoot, I totally uh, I lost. What my was it regarding it, the lending, uh, uh, the over collateralization? Oh, yes, yes. Um, so, so I guess I was gonna touch upon, yeah, what you said is exactly true, but you know, with real estate, now you're an expert at this, but little that I know, uh, just from what I've gone through. You know, if you want to, if you want to borrow against your collateral, you know the banks are very, very picky on, you know, your income, your credit score. You know, they want to see your cash flow. There's a lot of things that they ask you, right? Uh, for yeah. good and for bad, I guess. <laughs> so yeah. they yeah. want to make sure that you're not going to default on on the loan that they're giving you, right? right. So um, 
so I guess the beauty of BlockFi is that they don't ask you all those questions. The only thing they care about is, do you have collateral? That's the only thing we really care about is because if you default, we're going to take that away from you. <laughs> so I, I think the simplicity of that is just much better. Like okay. there, there's a lot of people that, that probably have a lot of cash on hand. Yeah. And let's say they want to go get a loan but they have bad credit or they have no credit at all or no cash flow at all. They just have a lot of cash. Most likely the bank will not give them a loan. They're like, well, we need to, we need something. We need something, right? Yeah. But with, with the case of crypto, you have a lot of crypto, let's just say equivalent to cash, you will get approved every single time. And I think that actually is a more elegant system because what ultimately comes down to is, can you pay that back? And if you can, great. If you can't, then we're just going to subtract it off from you and that's it. It's as easy as right. that. So right. I, I think the system is just better, better this way. That's uh, just Yeah. It was, so, and then maybe you could speak a little bit uh, about, uh, you had briefly mentioned it, DeFi versus CeFi. So centralized finance versus decentralized uh, yeah, I think when people hear crypto, they, sometimes they think everything's DeFi, but in, in theory, blockchain or BlockFi is a type of CeFi, right? Yes, yes. Okay. So DeFi is very broad. Um, so exchanges like Coinbase and Gemini, they're also centralized exchanges because there's someone that's really running them. And um, DeFi can include uh, DEXs, which is uh, basically... Um, trading platforms that that uh that basically uses uh liquidity pools so it's all automated and it's based on people staking um within those liquidity pools let's say you could stake eth and btc and because of that pair then people can trade against the two so it's 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 a new concept but there are trading platforms called dexes but there's also you know, ways to stake to get high interest like these, these, uh, they call it like yield farming. So it's like liquidity pools where you can stake and contribute to that liquidity pool and you could get massive interest from that too. So the, the project will share you like, let's say a cut of their fees. And also they have tokens themselves that they can uh, distribute and airdrop among others. So, there, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's really in DeFi, very early stage, very early stage. But those, these are all like automated. There's basically no middleman. No, it's like no one to like really in the middle to tell yeah. you if one thing can't be done or could be done. It's all governed by code. And some of these are so decentralized that um, I guess for better or worse, you don't even know. Uh, the team behind it. They're all anonymous. It just, it's governed there, you know? So sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes you, you do fail, but sometimes uh, they work out to be fantastic. So, so that, I, that's the difference between DeFi and DeFi. Yeah. I don't, I don't mean to interrupt you. I just got to unpack this a little bit. So it, so the difference between CFI and DeFi is CFI, you've got corporations or humans still involved. So you've really replaced like the Fed or government with corporations in, in right. CFI. In DeFi, you're really uh, you're, you're code based, but then you you talked about staking and liquidity pools and stake farming. Blast me to help me. <laughs> there, there's a lot. I mean, with uh, traditional exchanges, is basically how much 
crypto they have on hand, right? Like but that's the liquidity all, pool. It's like the all of the money that's available. Right. Right. Okay. What what DeFi is is just the same thing. Um, if you're going to be making a trade, you have to have a pool of whatever you're trading that's available, right? You have to have liquidity there. Sure. So, Somebody has to be on the other side of your trade. Yes. 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 And these projects, you know, rather than they trying to accumulate all this, um, yeah. they allow the users to provide it. So, uh -huh. yes. Oh, so, so they're the count. They're the they're the clearing firm almost rather than uh, like the the apex for Robinhood or, or whatever, you know, uh, or the Citadel. They're the ones like the, the code is basically trying to directly connect who's got the other money. Right. Right. So you think about it, they're, they're just providing a platform, but right. the platform starts out with basically nothing inside. There's Isn't nothing it, that, in the liquidity. That's how it used to be though, right? Like way, way back in like 2010 or whatever with Bitcoin, there were no uh, trading firms. There were no clearing firms. It was just like you had to wait until somebody else directly, like didn't you manually, and I don't know because I wasn't into it in 2010, but didn't you manually have to find the other person that you wanted to trade with, like you could just like, I want to sell my Bitcoin. You had to like manually scout out the other person to do the trade with. Yeah, that I think you're thinking about like uh, local Bitcoins, right? Something like that, okay. where it's like a P2P like trading. Okay. Um, yeah, so that that exists. Actually, uh, there, it's, it's funny too. I didn't know this just real quick about that. Like it's actually illegal to be selling Bitcoin if you're an individual. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I didn't know that. So people that operate on local bitcoins, they actually got arrested for that because it's categorized as like, um, I, I forgot what it categorizes you like. Um, someone you know almost categorizes you as like an exchange. So you yeah. need to get regulated for that. And it, it's some weird thing, but I've read about people that have been like brokers where they sell bitcoins directly to people. And they right. have been arrested for that. So first of all, that's not a good idea. So don't don't do that in your U.S. Um, and I wish I could elaborate on the, the laws a little better, but um, it's something weird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, no, uh, but anyways, um, but yeah, I mean, if, if you're like someone like Gemini, you you need to provide everything. So you're providing a platform and you're providing liquidity. So you have in your inventory. X amount of Bitcoin, X amount of Ethereum, X amount of whatever to be able to sell to people. And you replenish that. They have they have this, you know, they buy through the OTC market or whatever. They they can balance it. If you're a DeFi project, you start out with just a platform and nothing. So all the all the the you know, all the buckets are empty basically. So you incentivize users to provide that liquidity. So you're yeah. like, hey, if you have some Bitcoin or Ethereum, you want to put it into our pool, we'll give you 30% interest APY for doing that. <laughs> That's nuts. Like, is that just, is it just so high because they need the liquidity? Like, hey, they can't operate their code without people attracted to their platform? You, you should see that 30% is tame. Some of these pools offer thousands of percents for, for depositing. Which, I mean, it just must be because there, there, there's no liquidity. Like the reason yeah. you would offer so much of a percent is because people aren't using the platform, so they raise the, how what they're offering to attract people to put their money there, and then, if I'm understanding this right, stake their money and go, hey, you could use my coin to transact with it as part of your your, your software or whatever. But I mean, first of all, uh, I mean that 
sounds risky, right? Yeah. On one hand, because yes. it's like the reason they're offering so much interest is because not enough people are using it. So there's that. But then somebody had to write this code, which mm -hmm. doesn't the, the fact that somebody wrote this code in some sense make it centralized again? Well, someone someone always has to write the code, but right. um, a lot of these are, are after they're written, they're governed by the people. They would have, right. say, a governance token so that you can actually vote on future changes and so forth. And a lot of these are are open source, meaning that the code is available for everyone to see and audit and you know do checks. Um, so th that's one of the things, like the biggest, I guess the biggest DeFi play in the space right now, they're called Uniswap. Okay. And Uniswap is backed by Coinbase and other prominent companies because they're Coinbase and others are afraid that Uniswap may one day overtake them and that's why they need to invest in them to be sure. But Uniswap is what's called a AMM, which is the same thing where they have liquidity pools that you can provide uh, your crypto into and you can, by providing it, you can stake and earn high interest and you could also trade with it. That's that's this here, Uniswap announcing V3. So like somebody yeah. had to make the V3. Right, yeah. And there's a group of developers that is supporting it. So mm -hmm. there is no doubt there's a group of developers supporting it, but this is open source code that anyone can audit and see if there's anything fishy going on. And because it's open source, a lot of other projects have basically stolen their code and create copies of this. Uh -huh. And a lot of them have done very well doing so. So it's it's a it's a it's a very transparent market so that you can see what the platform is exactly doing. And right. also everything is provided by the users. So that that in itself is much more decentralized. And plus their uni token um, is also their governance token, which in the future will allow users themselves to dictate the direction of the project. That, oh, that's the uni, oh, uni swap here or whatever. The uni. I yeah, see. the uni token. Yes. Now, now Ethereum has a larger market cap than obviously two bill. This just means that people have two billion dollars worth of coins on the uni swap pool. Yes. In it. Yes. Okay. There's a website if you're ever if you're curious. It's called DeFi Pulse. Okay. So just just like how it sounds, DeFiPulse.com. Uh -huh. And this shows you pretty much all the DeFi project, how much is staked within Ethereum. So right now you have $40 billion worth of crypto that's staked in DeFi projects. Well, and, if, if, how do they yeah. measure that? I, I guess because it's all just open code or whatever you can. Yeah, you can they're all very transparent about how much they have, um, okay. how much is within them. And if you go down the list a little bit, you'll see that Uniswap is at number four. They have about $4 billion um, staked within, like the nice. part of the liquidity pool. But there are others too. You know, I, I mentioned about DEXs. I mentioned about, you know, these, uh, these pools. But there's also um, pure lenders too. So you'll see like number one, two, and three, Maker, Compound, and Aave. And they're yeah. labeled lending. So yeah. they allow you to basically put down collateral and they will generate a stable coin for you to use. Maker has it. So Maker is a project that does that. They have a stable coin called DAI, which is pegged one to one. And Maker, you know, Maker if you had, 
let's say a billion dollars or a million dollars worth of, I don't know, let's say Bitcoin, you yeah. can put it on Maker and generate, you know, X amount of uh, die, and then you could use that die for whatever purpose you want. Again, this is like DeFi lending, so it's 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 different from then, you know, um, what BlockFi and others are doing. So, so it's, what it's you're saying is, I can put my money over here with Maker and maybe earn some more interest. Yeah, you could take that die that they give you. You could use that to buy more crypto. You can stake that to. Where, where is that? Is that this? Uh, is that MakerDAO? Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. unbiased, world's first unbiased cryptocurrency, stable, decentralized currency that does not discriminate. Okay. Uh, I mean, it seems like very similar kind of arguments here. This one-to-one -one peg to the dollar. But mm -hmm. what you're saying is, I can deposit money here somehow, uh, and then. Uh, you know, do I guess other things with it, like buy other cryptos. Isn't this like system, like almost like feeding off of it? Like everything feeds off everything else. I mean, the more people use these, these miscellaneous, I should say altcoins or these other stable coins, the more people are just kind of putting money into Bitcoin and the other things. I mean, like in some sense, I was thinking to myself, isn't it possible that the more uh, money that goes into like the BlockFi's or Voyagers, the more they can, in theory themselves, take that cash that they now have because they gave a stable coin, they got cash, and they could just turn around and go buy more crypto. So it's kind of yeah. like this self-fulfilling market in some sense where where you're you're building up, but then yeah. you worry like, what's the risk factor on a potential down? Yeah, that that, that is uh, that is a valid point. Like the over, if you look at the overall market cap of the entire crypto space it's about 1.8 uh, trillion dollars does not mean that there's actually 1.8 trillion dollars in all of the projects a lot of it is um you know generated by basically you're 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 borrowing against what you have and you're putting that back into the system a lot of, a lot of that is like that um so there there is some risk level there uh, i'm not going to deny that there isn't that's why all lending projects or any project where it, it allows you to basically go on margin, um, there's a risk there. There's a risk sure. there, right? So that is why that's just something that I don't participate in. And besides these, you know, there's there's more things to DeFi. There's, there's so much more to DeFi. There's synthetic token creations too. And and you think like USDT. <laughs> you, you think about like USDT or Ethereum, right? If you wanted to use that, on another chain, you could create a synthetic, say, B USDT or B uh, ETH and use it on another chain. So there are uh, synthetic tokens that you could also use for DeFi purposes. Um, so there is a lot. There's a lot there. And I don't I'm not going to sit here and say they're all awesome and they're all great. There are sure. there is a risk involved with them, right? There is a risk involved with them. But Right now, that's kind of like what people are figuring out, that there's a lot that you can do with crypto and and uh, and DeFi, and that's what people are figuring out. Yeah. Now, the um, how do you think central banks are going to regulate all of this? I mean, we know that Jerome Powell has suggested the development of, at some point, a, a central bank digital currency. Mm -hmm. uh, and these CBDCs, they, you know, they're going to come. There'll be a euro coin. There'll be a China's working on one. Uh, how are these going to impact 
all of the other stable coins. I mean, like if there's actually a stable coin that's backed by the Fed, why not use that rather than a stable coin backed by a corporation? Um, that's a good question. So there's a, it's, I'm going to explain it. Well, first of all, let me, let me versus Bitcoin and then versus uh stable coin. Okay. I think, um, a lot of newcomers see that like a digital fiat, like a digital USD or something will go against Bitcoin. It won't right. because the inherent properties of Bitcoin, um, for example, it's non-sovereign, no countries control it, right? There's a set inflation rate that is decreasing until it gets to zero. There's a set supply. So there's no monetary policy that can be applied to it, right? So Bitcoin is not going to be affected to, say, a digital USD, which is just a digital version of USD, which yeah. you could arguably, arguably uh, say that they can mint more of it instantly. <laughs> it's like it's much easier for them to apply monetary policy or to generate more. So versus BD BDC, totally different animals. Now versus stable coins, it's closer, but stable coins only operate uh, on the fact that they only mint more if someone puts money into it. That's the whole point of stable coin. If you want $100 million worth of USDC, let's say, you have to go to Circle and say, here, here's $100 million, create 100 million USDC for me. They don't just automatically print or mint more and just put into circulation. That's the whole point of one-to-one -one backed. So the, the digital USD, when it comes out, it's not going to, yes, it's pegged to a dollar, but there's always going to be more coming out. And right. whenever Powell or whoever succeeds him will say, we need $5 trillion more, we'll just go ahead and create more. But you, right. stable coins will, will not be doing that. So there is still a difference there. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that does make sense. So yeah, you, nobody's going to take away Jerome Powell's money printer. Uh, yeah, exactly. The, I guess the the big difference then becomes the backing, because if if the one-to-one -one peg falls apart in, in market trading, because they are traded on the stable coins, USDCs or the tethers or whatever, that falls apart, there's no backing. Whereas now you've got Jerome backing uh, a, a central bank digital currency. Is that potentially... Uh, preferential like would would we prefer to have that kind of backing or does that just rub against the face of the whole crypto movement which is getting away from a jpow but then on the flip side it's just really turning corporations into that well you got to look at it like this usdc is not meant to be a store of value it's it's meant to be easily it's a it's a digital currency that's easily uh moved between exchanges honestly that's okay. that's the whole purpose of it so right. that if you had 100 million of USDC, you can move it between Coinbase and Binance or anywhere else very, very easily. And the whole purpose of getting it is to buy crypto with. Because a yeah. lot of these exchanges, quite frankly, is very hard to do a fiat uh, buying, right? There's, a, there's a, just a whole lot. And, um, and that's the whole purpose of USDC or stable coins. So, I mean... If you're looking at something that should, like you could argue that Powell backs, the U.S. government backs the USD. Of course, right. <laughs> you can't dispute that. The USD, is, I mean, the infrastructure of America is backed by USD, yes. But, you know, stable coins are not store values. Bitcoin is. Bitcoin is an asset. 
right? So you you could argue that one day somehow real estate all goes to zero. Is it likely to happen? No. Sure. Can the government seize all the real estate in, in the United States if they had a reason? But um, <laughs> but it's not likely, right? Yeah. So I mean, it's kind of like that. So I, I guess you know this this notion that again going back to where Bitcoin can go to zero. I mean, technically, of course, anything yeah. can, but is it likely? No. You think uh, Bitcoin and uh, or, or some form of cryptocurrency will replace the dollar entirely? Like, will will the need for fiat go away? So, so I guess the question would be: Will Bitcoin or some other replace fiat? I think a lot of people want to see that. I don't think it's realistic. I think it's not suited for it, although someone like Michael Saylor would argue against that um, because because there's a lot of a lot of projects that's called layer twos that are being built to make Bitcoin and others more useful. And you hear that a lot with Ethereum because uh, it's pretty slow. They're trying to they're trying to upgrade as fast as they can, but it's very slow. So you have these projects that are called layer twos, which yeah. is basically compatible with Ethereum, but it's much faster and it causes it, it can uh, it can get dApp makers to transist to a layer two very easily. So basically move from one chain to another. Bitcoin has something that's called Lightning Network that is trying to make it faster too, so that you can use it for day-to-day -day pur purposes. Like you could use it to buy coffee with and it'll be instantaneous because normally a Bitcoin transaction takes 10 minutes because that's when yeah. a new block is found, right? So, um, but I don't see Bitcoin moving toward that direction maybe one day it will and i'm wrong but i see bitcoin being something that that countries can possibly hoard you know how united states and all these countries hoard a ton of gold you know um and a lot of it came a lot of it was because before when the policy dictated that you have to have an x amount of gold to be able to have x amount of fiat a right. lot of it was from that but ever since after that ever since i think reagan or whoever took the USD off the gold standard, it's not really relevant anymore, but a, a whole a lot of countries have a whole lot of gold. Um, but I, I see the same thing happening with Bitcoin. As, as institutions, you know how we said about institutions being uh, late to the game versus retail? You know, I think countries will be also late to, <laughs> to uh, Bitcoin because why they'll would be you last, not? huh? What's that? They'll, they'll be last. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, hopefully that answered. I don't know if I went too long with that. <laughs> no, no, that's good. So, okay, not expecting it to take over, but what do we think about, like, there's there's this whole talk about proof of stake versus proof of work, right? Mm -hmm. Bitcoin's using proof of work, burning electricity, essentially, and, uh, uh, you know, Ethereum's proof of stake. Uh, what's, what's your take on that? Proof of work. Proof of work requires a lot of miners to... Yeah to solve this equation. And the biggest argument against it is it takes an enormous amount of energy to do so. The counterpoint to it is most miners and mining farms are utilizing green energy, like water, you know, water energy from waterfalls or wind energy and some are solar, right? Um, right. So, you know, proof of work, there's a beauty in that because the, the larger the network becomes, the harder it is to hack. So Bitcoin network is arguably the most secure network ever built by man. It is the one wow. network that hasn't been hacked 
yet yeah. uh, or ever. So the more you have, the, the, bigger, the bigger the number of miners there is that's trying to solve this equation, the harder it is to hack it. So there's a beauty in that. Proof of stake, on the other hand, is where you simply, anyone can download some code, some program into their computer, and you simply stake some coins or tokens, and you can basically help power the network by just holding on a few tokens. Um, so does it take a lot less electricity? Yes, a lot less. But, you know, some would argue that um, it's not as secure because some projects that are proof of stake have very limited number of nodes that's powering the network. So you could also argue that it's more centralized and that it's not as secure. So there's this gonna be there's gonna be this debate that goes on forever. Bitcoin Maximus will always say proof of work is better, right? But you know, usually everyone else like new projects like all um, any new project that's an altcoin will argue that proof of stake or variant of it is better because it's just easier to do and uh, there's more so many variations that you could do with it. So that's kind of the difference between the two. I see. Uh, any any concerns because you're fifty percent. Uh, Bitcoin, any concerns with a uh, move towards uh, staking? Uh, what do you mean? Like staking like, to 50% I mean, Bitcoin? We don't need proof oh. of work. Like if, if in the future we end up uh, determining, hey, you know, the, the other services like uh, Ethereum's proof of stake were, were just as secure, why not get rid of the, the burning of the electricity part in terms of uh, proof of work? Well, keep in mind, Ethereum right now is still proof of work. They're trying to move to proof of stake. Uh, um, okay, so they're transitioning. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, but to answer your question, uh, no, I, I don't think Bitcoin network, the proof of work, will ever go away because Bitcoin ultimately is is like I said, different. It's it's uh, it has the fundamentals first of its kind, and it's transitioned to a store of value. While all these other projects are trying to become the next tech powerhouses of the future. Um, and they need to continue to innovate and get faster and more secure and more uh, and easier to use and all that. Bitcoin, on the other hand, not threatened by that. They're digital gold. They're digital yeah. gold. And uh, it's almost like, have you, have you seen this movie? Um, I think it's called Just in Time or In Time with Justin Timberlake. You remember that movie? I can't recall it. Okay. Well, it's, it's a weird movie where everyone is imprinted with like a clock on their hand. And if okay. you run out of time, you die. Oh. And the rich will have a lot of time and the poor have to like keep working to make sure their clock doesn't run out. It's a very interesting concept. But in that video, I, I uh, in that movie, I mentioned this because the ultra rich will have like a, like a basically like a hard drive in their vault. And that, that vault is basically storing time that they can use at any time. So I, I see Bitcoin being the same thing. In the future, everyone is going to keep their Bitcoin on a ledger or hard drive or something. And they're just going to store it in their own vault. And that's, that's just going to be it. They're just going to hold on to it and wait the value to keep going higher and higher and higher. And if they happen to, say, want to use it to buy a house or a jet or a yacht, they could still send it. But it's not going to be something that they use every day to buy coffee with or something like that. That's how I view it. I see. I see. Okay. Okay. Uh, now, 
Voyager, a company Voyager, I talked to their CEO and they mentioned that, you know, with their coins, they do staking. Uh, and one of the concerns I had, and, and maybe, you know, just need to understand it better is if like a Voyager coin is going to be based on staking and then they do lending on top of this, this setup, I mean, isn't it some way the whole balance of the cryptocurrency uh, at uh, of let's say a voyager coin isn't the whole balance of that at risk in the event the value falls now it's like the value of the the collateral falls on the loans now the value of the staking falls like you know or, or is there a, is there a separation between the value of the stake and and its actual relative value to other coins does it not matter voyager works a little bit differently and i was trying to talk to uh steve beforehand but i couldn't yeah but they they're interesting because they don't they don't oh, they don't require you to stake they just require you to hold a balance and that's it and you earn interest so unlike blockfi where you know you you deposit to them it goes in cold storage and then it takes a long time to even withdraw like i think over a week to withdraw voyager all you have to do is hold bitcoin in their wallet and they're giving you interest which is very very interesting and you can withdraw that at any time there's like no delay at all so I mean, I saw the interview that you had with Steve, yeah, and he explains it pretty much. I think it's the same way as how others do it, but I, I don't know how. It seems like their system is a little bit different. Um, I, I can't really explain how they do it versus some of these other guess, like centralized lending platforms. Yeah. But um, ultimately, how they make money is by lending it out. And I think Steve, you must said on your show, they were lending it out to institutions that may be uh, doing high-speed trading or something like that. But Voyager's a little bit different because they do have their own native token. So keep in mind, and they're publicly traded. So they're, they're really unique in that aspect. Right. So, so they're publicly traded in Canada, but even though they're based in the US and they have their own token. So they, they like have multiple sources of funding, I guess. Um, so their token also provides, you know, liquidity to the project. So I'm, I'm assuming, I don't know this for sure. A lot of these projects that have their own tokens, they have hundreds of millions to billions of dollars worth of liquidity that they can use to provide better interest rates. So if they needed to, that they can sell their own token, because if you look at Voyager's token VGX, which has gone on, a extreme terror uh recently yeah. um they're valued at one billion dollars i believe last time i checked i think they were around one billion dollars um yeah 1.1 billion dollars so um so i'm guessing in a worst case scenario if they needed to get liquidity somehow they could sell off their own tokens so that's the difference between them and say um someone like blockfi but again uh I'm, I'm just making assumptions here because uh i don't know exactly how they do it but they're a little bit different than than everyone else gotcha gotcha what about this uh this nft craziness <laughs> you know and i'm calling it craziness because maybe i just I don't, I don't understand how like the new york times the other day and i brought this example up a couple times i was reading a new york times column they're like oh we're selling this this uh new york times column as an nft and the same day it sells for like 350 ether or something like that it was like six hundred thousand bucks and i'm like oh my gosh like so somebody has a j or it was like a png ownership of the column that was in the new york times 
first you know nft from the new york times how how do people value this like is it just the industry buying this stuff is it is there like uh, are they actually gonna be able to resell this you know it's uh the best way to think about it is um it's almost like emotional buy like an impulse buy okay like like um just like sports cards or i don't know you could argue sneakers or anything art right there's a value to what someone declares it to be i guess right if you love something you just want to buy it there's some kind of emotional attachment to it that's how how it's judged right now that's why there's some sales that are crazy crazy like jack dorsey also sold his first tweet for like 2.9 million dollars yeah. uh people had his his like mirage kind of thing sell for like 69 million dollars to, to 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 someone yeah i mean it's it's just these guys value it that much but here, here's the thing what people need to realize about nfts is they're they're all one of ones so there is a scarcity aspect to them so that you know just like anything else i mentioned about collectibles the more scarce it is the more valuable it is and the same thing with bitcoin there's only gonna be 21 million so nfts right now is getting to it's trying to find that price point there's a lot of marketplaces we don't know how to value it based on just whatever something someone's paying for it that's that's really it right. but there is a scarcity aspect to it um so that it, it it is driving demand up and you can actually also verify and authenticate something with nfts and make sure that what you have is real and legit and it's serial numbered basically one right so there are aspects to it um, but in terms of the, the craze that's going on right now, there's, there's, it's un undeniably, I mean, there is a craze. Yeah. I mean, like, I know that people say there's, there's scarcity and I, I've heard this. One of the, my concerns that I have when I hear, oh, there's scarcity value is the New York times could NFT every single article they do. Sure. Each one is only going to be one, but they could do every single one. I could NFT every YouTube video, every tweet, just nft everything at some point uh even though it wasn't the first but at some point i start diluting the value of that and then like how are we going to trade you know <laughs> i don't know again the, the open market would dictate that but there are yeah. certain moments right like yeah all these articles but let's say um i don't know your favorite sports team wins a championship i'm just gonna yeah. go with chicago bulls or something right yeah. especially when i grew up with jordan there's gonna be certain articles where it's front page jordan wins his sixth championship fifth championship there is something to that that people really want again that emotional attachment it doesn't matter how many new york time nfts have been created you want that one for that moment yeah. right yeah. so it'd be the same thing where you can create as many nfts you want if no one has some kind of emotional attachment to it that they want it they're not going to buy it and the market would dictate that so i think there's going to be certain occasions certain things that people want more than others i mean i i get that like look in 2014 when uh, i always refer to this uh, the uh, germany in the semifinals scoring you know seven goals uh in in soccer in the semifinals of the world cup that's that's crazy like that's a moment that that doesn't ha happen often uh, and so like, I, I love that, but that the problem that I have with that is that emotion fades over time for others. Like when I talked about that soccer event in 2014, everybody knew about it. 
now like nobody knows about it and remembers it anymore so that emotional connection as high and hypey as it was then is worth in my opinion way less now like it's not that emotion is not going up because there's no hype around it anymore it's actually going down and so to me it's almost like if i buy uh, an nft associated with a moment in time and an emotion in time i'm actually buying something that is going to decline in emotional value over time which presumably means it's going to decline in monetary value over time i would say yes and no because if you have such an emotional attachment to it it there's guaranteed there's someone else that has just as just as much emotional attachment maybe not the masses but there yeah. will be individuals that will have the same kind of emotional attachment but they gotta have money <laughs> right right and that's the other aspect to it is the money part the speculative <laughs> part people will get in just to try to create you know to generate money but right. some will, will keep it because of that emotional attachment and of course the money aspect is a bonus so I guess the right now the, the best example of this is MBA top shots. I don't yes. know if you've, you've heard of them, right? Um, so right now, sports cards in general, sports cards, especially basketball cards, is blowing up like yeah. crazily. Okay. My I have a really good friend that's into cards. Uh before 2020, everything was really down. After 2020, things have gone up tenfold, hundredfold. So a lot of those collectors, they got in because they love the player. They remember their childhood. They right. held on to them even though they didn't have a lot of value. But now they do have a lot of value. Sure. <laughs> but it makes their conviction, I guess, they're even stronger because they see how it's worth so much now. And they love that card. So NBA Top Shots is an extension of that where there are certain moments now right, that you can collect and there are some people that just love players, but other people are driven by the money of it too, which they're insane. You know, they're these pack drops that they have. Sometimes they're $2,000, $5,000 pack drops and they get sold out immediately because there's like 200,000 people waiting in line. And some of these players, these NFT moments get sold for $100,000, $200,000 sometimes. So now I think it's a little bit different because the money is there, but also there's collectors. And let's just say, for argument's sake, like what you said, over time, the money maybe dilutes. It goes down because there are less people that care about that. But the true collectors will continue to hold it. And it could be where it turns around, where something else may spur up interest in that moment or that NFT. Right. And it could be very different. And I, I also, I've, I've uh, had this thought about it. Like right now, they're not doing this because, of course, like let's say the NBA wants to make a ton of money. But let's say they evolve where you could buy a moment, then you can license it out. And you make licensing profits from that. Think about that. That would cause NFT moments or NFTs in general to skyrocket, skyrocket, yeah. right? Yeah. You buy a play from the playoffs or championship, every news outlet wants to use that licensing and you happen to own it think about how valuable that is right and there's other yeah. extensions to this too where if you're a music artist and you sell an album and say that album gets sold and you get a cut every time it gets sold think about that you can yeah. make all this possible it's just it doesn't exist yet but there's a lot of things that you can do with nfts that just doesn't exist now but it could evolve into something much bigger
I mean, and that I like. See, I like investing in Square, for example. One of the reasons is because, uh, and, and I'm open to putting more in Square, is, is mostly because you've got a potential play on uh, on NFTs with the music service that they just bought. We know Jack Dorsey just uh, sold his tweet, like you mentioned, as an NFT. So mm -hmm. I'm sure they've already connected the dots. You can almost guarantee it. Mm -hmm. It makes sense for music and this redistribution purpose, especially if you can you can really like uh, like YouTube. They use content ID to determine who's using the same content. It's almost easy to check now using algorithms. Who's playing my music without a license? Who's playing my video right. without a license? Right. That's great. Monetization purposes there. Yeah, oh, that I like. Like, hey, you want to replay this? Cool. Like you got to pay a fee or whatever. That's interesting to me. Uh, I, I guess more where I'm a little concerned is like, Let's say there's this, uh, I, I don't know, here's a, you know, a picture or whatever, a portrait or whatever of uh, Babe Ruth, for example. You know, let's let's put this up for a second. So something like this. So you put up a, a Babe Ruth or something. I don't know, that might be cut off because I didn't minimize it. But anyway, you put up a, a thing of Babe Ruth or something like this. Uh, you know, okay, cool. So people who saw him play, you know, back, you know, 100 years ago or whatever, loved it. And, and there's a huge connection here. But today, you know, I feel like if I ask, uh, you know, 18, 20, 25, 30-year-olds about Babe Ruth, nobody cares. It's like, no, that's that's from a different century. Don't care. I'm interested in, you know, Steph Curry or, so, you know, some, whatever uh, the, the popular player is of the day. You know, I want I want a Kobe card or whatever. Isn't that a possible risk factor? Well, just look at sports cards. Look at the, the yeah. oldest rookie cards for baseball, right? Yeah. I'm not that big into baseball, but... How come the oldest baseball cards didn't drop to zero just because no one watched them? <laughs> because, okay, right? There's, yeah. There's always going to be someone that is going to be holding on to it, maybe because there's a value to it. They they flip. They can. They know they can flip it, or there's some other purpose. So just because a generation doesn't like them doesn't mean they just tank. Like, you know, I grew up with Jordan, right? And now yeah. LeBron is is getting old too so maybe pretty soon after lebron retires who knows what uh i don't know Giannis or someone will be will be the new king or something like that but doesn't mean that jordan cards are just go die to zero there's always sure. going to be people that view him as the goat and maybe in a hundred years no one is even around that has ever watched jordan right but still right. i don't think it's just go go to zero and i think that's well, I, I guess the, same the, thing. the the concern here is is collectible versus speculation, right? So at what point do we get to a collectible value? And at what point, or is it the same? Or at what point are we we speculating that, well, I'm going to be able to flip this top shot clip to somebody else for more money next year? You know, at, at what point do we separate that? And does it matter? Like, just let the market do its thing. And if a bunch of 95% of NFTs go to zero, oh, well, they, people knew what they were getting into. And, and sure, those 5%, like, the Babe Ruth card, uh, those are the ones that that uh, legendarily keep their value. Yeah, I, I think it determines on, um, I guess it determines on like, like how good you are at picking something, right? Yeah. Like yeah. It, <laughs> right? It it uh, it depends because just like any asset, there's no guarantee that it's gonna go up. Right. Um, you know, going back to real estate, you buy a plot of land in the middle of nowhere with no development. You could hold it a hundred years and it never go up. But yeah. you buy somewhere that's developing, it'll go up. Um, it's kind of the same thing with NFTs. If you choose to buy NFT, that basically <laughs> no one will like. 
<laughs> that is not going to be worth anything. But if you buy something like a moment, um, yeah. because there are licensing involved. So right now there's a lot of people that create NFTs that they have no rights to create. So right. like with tweets and stuff like that. But imagine when um, there are a lot of licensing that, that's out there. And when you have like, like comic books too, you have the very first edition of Spider-Man or something like that. They're worth a lot. And, and the ones that have licensing, they can create NFTs that are, you know, the, the first edition, you know, and uh, there might be different editions or something like that, but you're still going to know that you have the first one and the only one. And because it's an NFT, it's automatically authentic. It can't be duplicated. So there's, there's a value to that. But of course, you have to determine which ones to buy and which ones not to buy. Right. Well, I mean, I, I get that with like, it's authentic. Like, there's only one, but some of those, like you look at the crypto kitties, some of them look so similar to each other. It's kind of like, yeah, it's not the same one, but it's really similar to the other one, you know? Well, I mean, that's, that's just how it is. I mean, uh, <laughs> a lot of, a lot of cats and dogs look similar too, but you know what? <laughs> You go value your dog and cat more than someone else's cat or dog, right? So it's kind of the same thing. That's uh, that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. That's interesting. So I, I guess let me ask you, are, are you investing heavily in NFTs? No, not yet. Not yet. Now there is, um, I, I'm kind of on like your boat. Uh, I feel like the market needs to dictate the price a little bit more. There's just too many wild swings. Celebrities are getting into it. Everyone is trying to get into the craze, right? So I think the market needs to dictate what's worth something, what's not. There's a lot of discovery at this point. So I'm waiting it out. But I'm looking at, there's a lot of promising projects out there that that have the licensing. Yeah. Um, I'm just gonna name a few. Like uh, for example, um, Ecomi is the one that has DC licensing. They also have licensing with the NFL. So they couldn't possibly do something that others can't, right? So I am paying attention to projects that have exclusive licensing that can potentially create things that basically will have value, but I'm not there yet. But there are a lot of projects that do have official licensing. So you, you gotta pay attention to them. Huh. So that licensing is, is almost a, a key. Uh, yeah, I like the idea of the music and, and the videos because you can you can sort of track that. But, you know, I was even thinking just like take some of the most popular NFTs, put them on an iPad and put them all in my hallway. And they're not my NFTs, but just here's my NFT collection because it's like, here it is. I'm showing off NFTs. I don't own them, but in theory, I'm getting the same kind of pleasure out of them unless the, the idea is to just really speculate on that appreciation potential <laughs> i don't know how to answer that okay if if you are an art guy yeah okay you can buy a replica of a picasso or replica of mona lisa and i do right? huh <laughs> <laughs> i find the 30 amazon paintings are fine <laughs> But you cannot deny the fact that you would not rather have the real thing hanging up there, right? I would sell it and buy Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> Even a Mona Lisa, I, I wouldn't. I don't think that would be a good move. <laughs> the problem is, like, I, like okay, this is one thing I like about NFTs. I'll give you that. Is like 
I don't have to worry about my, my, my Mona Lisa burning down if I had one, you know, right. like I'd be like so nervous. Like what if, what if like the light shines in the wrong way and fades her face or something? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it, I, I think it just really comes down to um, what your interests are, what you like. Yeah. Do you rather have NFT just sitting there that's, that's worth hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, or would you rather have that in Tesla stock, right? It just, it's different for everyone, but there's a lot of people that made enormous, enormous amount of money with NFTs too. So, um, so if you're just looking at it from a, like a making money perspective, yeah. then I would argue NFTs are great. They're great, right? But as a, a store of value, are they going to hold that value over long term? That's not determined yet. Right, right. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So really, it's so early. We don't know uh, the future value, or, and there's really no history to look at like a Logan Paul NFT because right. we don't have a precedent. It's not like, oh, well, here's this YouTube creator from 1950 whose NFT is now worth a billion dollars. We don't have that. Right. So, so right. it's all kind of just like uncharted territory, basically. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Okay. That's that's fair. So okay. So. Uh, NFTs do not make it into your portfolio on, on that uh, 50, 25, 25 because it's that uncharted territory. Yeah, and NFTs is like, you know, I, it is crypto and it's not. It's not like NFT is not a project. So when I say that 50, 25, 25, it's more investing into projects. NFTs, if I do invest into them in the future, I'm not going it's not really in the 50, 25, 25 rule anymore. It's more like something separate. I see. I see. Yeah. I mean, here's somebody who's got a good point. It's like buying overpriced Tesla tequila because you like Tesla. Hey, I mean, that's a fair <laughs> point. I mean, I spent $250 on a stupid bottle of tequila that hasn't even shown up yet, you know? <laughs> now my I could probably my friend got sell one. it on eBay for more. <laughs> but yeah, my friend got one. I don't know if it's limited now, but he, he got his bottle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. So, uh, so you're not, you're not so worried about like, uh, like BlockFi, for example, being a, a Ponzi scheme, uh, going back to that, because I see a question here on that. You're not so worried about that, huh? No, I mean, there's always going to be critics. People, there are still Bit some connect. people that, huh? <laughs> connect. Yeah, some people will, will still say Bitcoin is a Ponzi. I mean, yeah. people will always say, what well, they'll bash what they don't know, or they'll okay. bash what they're jealous of. Um, okay. There's legit concern i guess with something like a, a block five of course there's risk that's involved um anything with lending again anything that you don't hold there's a risk level there but ultimately if you look at who runs let's say block five the the security measures they have in place the 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 margins and over collateralization and everything else um there's no way they're a Ponzi. They're not a Ponzi. Is there a risk? Yes. Are they a Ponzi scheme? No. Just like Bitcoin. Is there a risk to buy Bitcoin? Yes. Is it Bitcoin a Ponzi? No. So, I mean, that's that's how I answer that. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like uh, I, I think uh, people think of anything as potentially having fraud related to it as, as a Ponzi when it's not even necessarily definitionally right. I think the big concern right. is people paying out like, like if, for example, if it ever came out that a crypto firm was basically just paying out interest payments on new deposit, like out of the coffers of new deposits, yeah, that, then that would be a little bit more concerning. But we haven't seen that. But then again, we also don't have as much regulation. Have you ever been concerned that, you know, 
Or have you ever thought that maybe once we actually get the regulation, then maybe then at that point, Bitcoin goes to the moon because it's like it's got that blessing of regulation if it is a blessing. Yeah, I think most people in this space will say the, the opposite of that, that regulation yeah. might drive things down. Um, I think one of the, the ones that Mnuchin tried to implement and try to rush out before he got kicked out, basically, was this uh, very, um, this KYC. Um, basically, he, he was trying to impose KYC on all the exchanges on every single deposit and withdrawal that they would have. So they would need to know who they are. So anyone that had their own wallet um, would have to declare who they are to these exchanges, which would be right. a big burden for these exchanges. Because right now what they care about is if you buy on their platform, they, they do KYC, they would need to know who you are. Um, but that's it. But if they have to track where every single transaction goes to and who they are and who they belong to, that would add so much more, you know, headaches and, and overhead. So good thing when, uh, Biden took over, Yellen took over, basically they paused that. I think they're still looking at it, but a lot of Congress people and, and others, uh, have basically said, that's not really a good idea. Let's go stop innovation. Right. So we'll see what it is. It really depends. I think regulation is not all bad. I think in the yeah. space, there's no doubt there is uh, inside trading. There's a lot of before exchange listings, certain coins pump up randomly. And then next day they're added on Coinbase. So there is insider trading info that's being spread. Um, there's also uses of futures and options to drive things higher or lower. Sometimes um, there's a lot of things going on that I would love to be eliminated. I think regulations will help with that. But ultimately, if, if there's too much regulations, I think it would be a bad thing. But this notion that, you know, I think uh, Ray Dalio recently said that he thinks if Bitcoin gets too big, the government will try to shut it down. I think they're more concerned about taxing people that have Bitcoin than trying to shut it down. Because it's just... Uh, right. It's a worldwide thing. You, you can't just really just shut it down. It's just way too hard. But I think what they really care about is how do we know who has it, who does it, and how do we tax them based on their gains? That's what they're really concerned about. Well, and in theory, I mean, all the IRS needs to do is ask you for your wallet address and, and associate like on your tax return. And all of a sudden, all your Bitcoin privacy is out the window because now they're connecting your wallet ID to your social, which is connected to your date of birth, your address, your bank account. And all of a sudden, they know everything they need to know about every transaction. I mean, they, they almost get more knowledge about you by knowing your Bitcoin address. Exactly. Well, so that, that's the thing. So the good thing about Bitcoin and pretty much all crypto is you can create unlimited amount of addresses, but yeah, you can't absolutely. hide transactions between the addresses. That's the uh -huh. thing. So if they, you have a good point. If they know this original address belonged to you, it doesn't matter who you send it to. They know that you sent it to that person. And it could be you, it could be someone else. But right. once they know you, they know you for life. <laughs> They'll have yeah. you on record. But, um, you know, but the good thing is you can have multiple addresses. And sure. there, are, there are individuals, or, I mean, there's a lot of individuals with addresses that no one knows about, especially the early people. There are yeah. some people that are, you know, they're, they could be the richest people on earth um, based on their Bitcoin, how much they hold and just no one knows about them. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, 
uh, geez, I wouldn't be surprised if in the future, like the, the Palantirs uh, or the Snowflakes, these data aggregators, these big data operators, they are able to start linking like, oh, here's a wallet address and it just webs out all of these these uh, associated conclusions <laughs> oh, they, they, they already do uh there's a big oh. company chain chain analysis chain they, analysis. they just got some big funding um they actually work with government agencies i think they do of work with the irs <laughs> biggest customer right there <laughs> right um so they do exist and yeah a lot of government agencies are utilizing them to basically track where all the funds are going and to and stuff i mean there are legitimate reasons of course they do want to prevent things like money laundering and stuff like that and illegal activities. Yeah. But uh, yeah, they they exist. Sorry, this one. There we go. Yeah. They're so, actually the biggest uh, in the space. Yeah, but uh, now I pulled up this other thing here too. I saw somebody mentioned this. Somebody asked a question about this here. Mm -hmm. What's what is so this is supposed to be totally private. Have you heard of this where where, where they can't tell who you are or something like that? Yes. Monero so with this, you're your own bank. I mean, what, what is this? Well, everyone is there. Anyone in crypto, anyone holding Bitcoin is their own bank. So that's not the important thing. The important, the important thing is Monero is completely private. They, they encrypt in a way so transactions can't be, uh, can't be tracked. So Monero no is wallet, like with widely used in uh, in the dark net on the dark net. So there's a lot of transactions that people don't want to track. They use Monero, and there's other other privacy coins like it. So governments around the world do not like it. So they what they're trying to do is they make the exchanges delisted. So in South Korea, almost every single exchange already delisted Monero. In the U.S., I don't believe there's any exchange that has Monero listed. So yeah, I think the, the concern is they can't track it. Someone like Chain Analysis can't crack it. So they can't, they don't, they don't know what's going on. So they don't like it. Wow. Wow. Jeez. Ay, ay, ay. I mean, this is, this is really incredible. What do you think about uh, Tesla? Tesla buying Bitcoin. Should they have all of their cash in Bitcoin? Or is it good that they just put a little bit in, you know, whatever, 7% uh, or whatever they have uh, in? I, I think Elon is the type of guy that has bigger plans for it and i think we 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 uh we saw that with the recent announcement that um i mean he already announced it before that he was going to allow uh tesla to be bought with bitcoin but no one anticipated that he was actually going to run his own node and keep all the bitcoins that he collects that is a, a big departure because everyone else everyone else that accepts bitcoin basically gets it converts it to cash and that's it right. so they're not really holding on to it but the fact that he's holding on to it, which means that he doesn't need to actually put more cash into it. Everything that he collects will just grow their reserves. So I think that's that that's that's really that's really big. But uh, I kind of knew that Elon was going to do it. I mean, um, you know, Michael Saylor um, had that little conversation with Elon on Twitter, and I knew yeah. that the two was going to hook up, and and Elon was going to do it. Now, some argue, I think that. Tesla guys that don't like Bitcoin will argue that Tesla made a big mistake and that's why their stock has come down and has not moved. Um, I would argue that to a point, I think, I think that Wall Street turned a little bit negative on Tesla because of it. But here's the thing. When the next big corporation announces that they're doing the same thing and adding $1.5 to $5 billion of their reserves in Bitcoin, 
it's going to change the narrative once again. And it's going to make Elon and Tesla and everyone else look like a genius. And ultimately, if you look at the bottom line, Tesla didn't declare what they bought their uh, Bitcoin at. But people are anticipating somewhere around 48,000-ish, 45, 48,000-ish. And people already calculated based on that and today's prices, Tesla already made like over a billion dollars just from that Bitcoin purchase alone, right? Right. So how could you argue against that? I mean, that that in itself is huge, but seems like Wall Street doesn't want to pay attention to that. So yeah, Wall Street's pretty good at sticking its head in the sand. <laughs> so, uh, and then and then following the trend later to say, yep, yep, we were part of the trend. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's 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 a growing trend. The rumor is Larry Ellison, um, obviously a board of Tesla. Rumor is that Oracle will get in soon. Um, wow. Also, um, Twitter will probably be the next one too, oh, because, yeah. Yeah, uh, because of Jack Dorsey. I mean, Square's already buying Bitcoin, so that's that's never mind. Square's already in. Right. Square is PayPal, Tesla, and then a micro strategy. Yeah, cheese, man, it's endless potential. There's, what there's what haven't we covered? Uh. I I don't know. Was, we've been talking for what two hours? Over two yeah. hours. Uh, I, no, I go ahead. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think we covered mostly. I think mostly everything that uh, I think your audience would want to hear about. I mean, there's there's just so much. I mean, there's so right. much in the space. You know, I think the one thing we didn't cover, and maybe we can do this on a future stream because I think there's too much to talk about, is the fact that some of these altcoins that I talked about. Right, yeah. um, the 50, 25, 25, these altcoins, why are they different now than before? Why are they standing their own? Why are they actually gaining on Bitcoin? Why, what, what do they do? What, what, what is their purpose? Because do, Bitcoin do you have Magnus, a 30 second version for that. <laughs> well, um, think about anything that's centralized right now, it could be anything social media, operating system, messaging app. Anything out there that is centralized right now, someone is trying to create a better form, a decentralized version of that. Yeah. And that is why it's very, very exciting in this space. There's so many that are trying to create a platform for other dApps to ride upon. Some are creating new browsers that is more privacy focused. For example, you don't want Google to track all your, all your emails and read through your emails and track what you're doing, right? You could download Brave. Brave browser. It's created by the guy who created Brandon Ike. He created JavaScript. He also created Firefox. And he created a project called Basic Attention Token. And he has a new browser that's very privacy-based. So there's a lot of things out there that's very exciting. Basically, anything centralized, there's a decentralized version that's coming out. You know, I'm learning about new projects all the time. I heard one that's like a Ticketmaster um, competitor. There's a there's a one uh, that's a Spotify competitor, which is already yes. operational and they're doing very well. There's so many out there that are all trying to create this this um, you know the the next powerhouse, and that's why it's so exciting. So I, I love to talk to you some more about that, some of these projects, but there's there's yeah. just so much. So when it comes to uh, Bitcoin, we already know uh, that you do not think there's a high likelihood of this collapsing or going to zero. When when are we going to hit the moon, and what what is the moon like? Are we going to hundred k, five hundred k? Any predictions? Well, I mean, um, if you bought at a thousand, we're already at the moon, right? Um, and that was not too long ago. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, there, there's some people that got in at $1, $10. It really depends on when you, when you enter the game. But I think Bitcoin at a very minimum will reach gold's market cap, which yeah. would place it around five dollars to $600,000. Basically give it to, yeah, a $12 trillion market cap. And then we'll see what happens there. Because if, if the trend continues where everyone starts really selling off their gold reserves and really utilizing that to buy Bitcoin, you're going to see so much more money coming in and it's, it's just going to be wild. But I, I think at a minimum um, around there, five to 600,000, is it going to come this cycle or next cycle? I don't know. I think this cycle, which should end at end of 2021, doesn't mean that it will. Because I right. mentioned about institutional adoption and this cycle is just very, very different than previous cycles. Is that just because of so many people getting involved? Yeah, because because it's not just retail driven. You know, retail investors are they have the weakest hands, right? If things go, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Institutional investors they they've been in the game for a very long time, and they they have the strongest hands. And if they're buying Bitcoin, I don't think they're selling off anytime soon. Uh, I guess one one more one that I do want to ask you about: what about the quantum computing risk? So. I have a really good answer for this. A lot of people think that quantum computers will break the SHA-256 encryption of Bitcoin's network. And if they do, they can basically do whatever they want. They can steal anyone's Bitcoin and the network will basically destroy, get destroyed. Here's the thing. Quanta, if you talk to anyone that really knows about quantum computers, you'll know that the, the operations, what they could do is very limited. So it's, it's nowhere close to getting that point. But if you do, let's just pretend for a second that in 10 years from now, someone creates the ultimate quantum computer that can breakly, easily break any kind of encryption out there. Right. Then you have bigger problems because they can huh. utilize that to break anything. They can hack into any brokerage, any exchange. They can hack into the US government. They can fire nukes. Like if you, if it got to that point, the last thing they would think about is to break Bitcoin's network. They would they could do some real destruction. So that's why I, I don't think that's a valid concern, because if we ever did get there, we would have much bigger problems. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. How long have you been investing in Bitcoin? Uh, I got in in 2013. I got into mining. Unfortunately, I didn't. I got scared out. So 2014, when things came down, I got out. But I got back in early in 2017. So probably February timeframe, 2017. So back then, Bitcoin was barely above $1,500. So something around there. Wow. Wow. I mean, that's that's awesome. Good for you. I mean, you've, yeah. Yeah, what an incredible ride. Uh, geez. Yeah. Well, uh, it, it, anything else you want to hit on? Uh, I mean, this is uh, this has been very, very insightful. First of all, thank you so much for for coming out here, and then uh, definitely shout yourself out and your your channel, how people yeah. can follow you. Uh, yeah. If you guys want to learn more, uh, check me out on Cryptos R Us. I stream two times every day, eleven a.m. and eight p.m. Central Standard Time. So, uh, I I give a lot of good info. But yeah, I mean. Um, uh, this was good. This was good. I don't have really anything else to say. I mean, I, I appreciate you bringing me on the show. I think I think we had a good chat looking at the live chat. Everyone had a good time. So hopefully your audience learned a little bit and hopefully you learn a little bit. <laughs> and hopefully, Absolutely. Always learning. <laughs> hopefully we can uh, talk again in the future because there, there's so much more about these projects and, um, and what they're doing. I think there's just yeah. so much innovation happening and I think it's it's really good. 
Oops. Yeah, no, it's 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 endless. Uh, I love it. Well, we'll definitely uh, we'll we'll catch up for a part two. Then uh, stand by for a moment, George. Everyone else, if you found this helpful, like the video, subscribe, consider sharing the video, and folks, we'll see you in the next one. Bye bye.